but I'm afraid the end time is near. The cataclysmic apocalypse referred to in the scriptures of every holy book known to mankind. It will be an era fraught with boundless greed and corruption, where global monetary systems disintegrate, leaving brother to kill brother for a grain of overcooked rice. The nations of the civilized world will collapse under the oppressive weight of parasitic political conspiracies which remove all hope and optimism from their once faithful citizens. Around the globe, generations of polluters will be punished for their sins, unshielded by the ozone layer they have successfully depleted, left to bake in the searing naked rays of light. Wholesale assassinations serve to destabilize every remaining government, leaving the starving and wicked to fend for themselves. Bloodthirsty renegade cyborgs created by tax-dodging corporations wreak havoc. Pissed-off androids tired of being slaves to a godless and gutless system where the rich get richer and the poor get fucked over and out. Unleash total worldwide destruction by means of nuclear holocaust, annihilating the terrified masses, leaving in its torturous wake nothing but vicious, cannibalistic, mutated, radiated, and horribly disfigured hordes of satanic killers bent on revenge, but against whom there are so few left alive. Starvation reigns supreme, forcing unlucky survivors to eat anything and anyone in their path. Massive earthquakes crack the planet's crust like a hollow eggshell, causing unending volcanic eruptions. The creatures of the seven seas, unable to escape to certain death upon land, boil in their liquid prison. Disease encircles the earth. Plagues and viruses with no known cause or cure, laying waste to whatever draws breath. And humankind, having proven itself to be nothing more than a race of ruthless scavengers, fall victim to merciless attack at the hands of interplanetary alien tribes who seek to conquer our charred remains. This is Extinction Level Event, the final world front, and there is only one year left. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm nearing the end of my extinction-level event miniseries, which is basically it's a miniseries wherein I take a nice, long look back at a bunch of comic book crossover storylines. And in fact, this episode marks part five of the extinction-level event miniseries. You see... I think it'd be fair to say that, really, my entire podcast is supposed to be a celebration of comics. But, I gotta tell you folks, I've never really been a big crossover event sort of guy. Historically, these big sweeping crossover stories have been just a little bit of a turnoff for me. But, I've grown to really appreciate a bunch of them especially in recent years, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we get too much into the blood and guts of today's story, I should probably think about introducing this week's guest, because something-something manners. Now, 
When I first started prepping for this series, I sent a bunch of messages to a bunch of podcasters, inviting them to join in for any crossover story that they wanted. To my lasting surprise, all of the people that I contacted wanted in. And oddly enough, they all wanted in on different stories. One such podcaster is today's guest. He's a man of many parts, very divergent interests. In fact, in the realm of comic book podcasters, I dare say he's got a more varied repertoire than a lot of people. He's the host of In Country, a podcast all about the Marvel series, The Nom. He's the host of the Pop Culture Affidavit Podcast, the show which takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, and he's also the former host of Taking Flight, a Dick Grayson podcast. He's also one of my podcasting vassals, but over and above all that stuff, this guy's my friend. And so it is with great pleasure that I welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality for the first time since his kinda, sorta, half-ass cameo appearance back in my epic, epic, epic 100th episode, Mr. Tom Panarese. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on again. This, I've been I've been looking forward to this ever since you uh, you sent out the request. This is this is going to be fun. This is going to be a lot of fun, actually. And yeah. um, I don't want to you know peel back the curtain really too much, but uh, at the same time, I can't really uh, not mention the fact that you know what you and I are not the only ones who are anticipating this episode. Hmm. Um, I recorded with. Um, uh, Michael Bailey, and uh, last week he and I released an episode dedicated to Marvel's Secret Invasion. Okay. And uh, he made it actually very clear to me that uh, he can't wait to listen to this episode. So he's nice. definitely in a, in a, a, I suppose, anticipation of you know for all this and see see what's coming. Now, nice. um, I guess to get into that, mm-hmm. um, what we're going to be talking about today normally i'd stick to guest with introducing it but i'm trying to stay on uh on uh, tom's good side today uh what we're going to be talking about is the final night this is a uh, four issue mini series it was one of those uh month-long events that came out in um november 1996 it was one of dc's sort of month-long events that they were really perfecting i think at this point getting into like the mid-90s you didn't necessarily have these huge event storylines that were going on for months on end. Usually what you'd get is the event, and it's sort of an in-and-out thing. You're there in a month, and then that's it. And like the first like example of that that I can think of before the final night was actually Zero Hour. There may have even been something before that, but fuck yeah, it. But we, we don't talk about Millennium. <laughs> no. No, we don't. And um, the... The pitch is, you know, you the entire story is told over the span of uh, one month of publishing, and you get all the tie-ins. It affects literally the entire DC universe, and we're going to be coming back to that in just a moment. And then, starting the next month, you move on to whatever's coming next. And, like I say, The Final Night's not the first time that uh, DC ever did this, but I do think it's one of the best instances of them doing it. And, um, anyway, so the uh, the pitch of the story... It's actually rather simple. Basically, the uh, the Sun Eater pimps into the to the Milky Way. Besides, he's got the munchies, 
and starts chowing down on the sun. The act of doing so blocks out the sunlight. And, um, well, fuck it. May as well get into um, the uh, the story summaries. And then we can, from there, get into uh, uh, Tom's and my reaction to all of this. So, what did I think? You know what? For the moment, I'm going to cede the podium to Tom. We're going to talk about what he thinks first. So, Tom, as far as just uh, this main series, issues number one, two, three, and four, what are your thoughts? Um, one, this is one of the few times uh, in in an, in a very long history of reading comic books where DC was on trend in the story it was telling because this is basically a disaster movie. Yes. And 96, the mid to late 90s, was this resurgence of disaster movies. You had um, – I don't know if Independence Day can be counted as a disaster movie. But you had Volcano and you had Deep Impact and Armageddon and some of those would come later. Um, mm-hmm. Dante's Peak. Yes. Uh, there were there were a couple other ones that they, they kind of – they were – they varied in terms of their success. And this is a – this is a disaster movie that the type of disaster that you could that only superheroes can solve, but that superheroes are also going to have a difficult time solving because like you could have an asteroid hurling toward Earth yet, you know, you've got Superman, Captain Marvel, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern. I mean, that's over in five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, this is this is and. and the other thing is that unlike current crossovers and current events that go on, like big events like this, mm-hmm. th- there's no – with the exception of the death of Hal Jordan mm-hmm. at the end, there is no universe-shattering, far-reaching consequences like, you know, this isn't – Nobody's trying to make this crisis on Infinite Earths all over again, or or trying to re up the last event or anything. And and I think this is where they figured out that if you if you have a, a the threat or the um the MacGuffin, the threat or whatever whatever it is that drives this story has to be big enough to warrant you know a, a crossover. Yet it doesn't always have to be on the scale of a universe changing event especially because it's a weekly book weekly books are never the easiest thing in the world to put together so i give a lot of credit to carl kiesel and um steward imminent uh in their ability to a put this out and have it look really good Mm -hmm. and then b have the story is pretty tight there's not a ton of fat in this and and it's one of the reasons I've always really really liked it it's a it, it's it can exist really really well on its own and with the exception of like one or two things um, it doesn't have a huge impact on the DC line for years and years down the road it doesn't necessarily need to though it's a you know it's kind of what you want you want to, it's a, it's a nice popcorn piece for for a summer or early fall when this when this I think came out yeah. So. No, and I, I you know, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, uh, we talked about zero hour just a while ago, and that kind of ties in with what you were, you know, uh, what you were saying with, uh, you know, mm-hmm. continuity and having far reaching effects. Really, some characters more than others, but I think it would be fair to say nobody came away from that unscathed. You know, everyone got affected 
to some degree or another. Yeah. And then after that, you had um, Underworld Unleashed. And uh, that was really just the story of Hell is making a move, shall yeah. we say. And uh, making a play for Earth. And so, you know, shit goes down. Yeah, pretty much. This story is, like you say, this is a little bit more grounded in terms of a, a disaster, for lack of a better word, that honestly, I think most people don't have to think very hard to relate to. I mean, like this whole idea of this hero turned villain erasing and then rebuilding the time, like the space time continuum in his own image. Yeah. The way that he thinks things should have gone back in zero hour. You kind of need to be a geek of two or three magnitudes in order to really wrap your head around that. Yeah. Underworld Unleashed. Um, there is such a thing as an atheist, guys. So right there, you're leaving out a segment of the market. Yeah, but I think even atheists can understand the whole literary concept of the Faustian bargain. Okay, well, all right, fair enough. But, yeah. um, you know, it's that's just, basically what Underworld Unleashed is like tenfold right but i'm it's just i I guess it's dealing with that subject in very literal terms and that's that's kind of you know no that's true that's true and so um you know there is that to think about whereas the final night there's really nothing metaphorical about it there's nothing shall we say uh, i almost said earth shattering that's actually not (laughs) the the case Uh, I guess what I'm saying, though, is that the the conflict in this story, the the problem that has to be solved is something that's very easy to relate to. Yeah. And I think it also kind of plays into a a psychological um, vulnerability that a lot of people have that we depend, even if it's just psychological, on some like very basic, dark psychological level, on the moon being there every single night and the sun being there every single day. And when... You take that away, you know, irrespective of the environmental catastrophes that are there that are inevitably going to ensue, you're still at the you're still taking away a very crucial element in people's consciousness and what that does to people. And I don't think the story really gets so much into that, at least not in the main series. Mm. But it, no matter how you look at it, you know, this plays into something that it's easy for even civilians to kind of get on board with and understand holy shit you know things are happening here and that's not necessarily this is my point that's not necessarily the case with every single one of these um main uh, major you know crossover series that dc does and to kind of get into i guess like the story itself you know um one of the things that actually kind of there's a sort of running theme of we're always seeing the metropolis skyline at, yeah. at various points in this story from the same basic point of view and the way it's reacting to the to its surrounding environment, whether it's, you know, just normal sunny weather or whether the sun's uh, temporarily blocked and now, you know, hell is, well, hell is freezing over, I suppose, yeah. on Earth. And you have all this snow and all this other shit that's going on. And, and it's, it's just one of those little um, artistic flourishes that, I'm not sure if this was Carl Kiesel's idea, you know, the writer, or if it was Stuart Eminem or what, but it's um, a very powerful visual theme of the story, and it just it, – it really – it plays powerfully for me. And that actually kind of leads into something. It's always the Metropolis skyline that we see. Now, the creative team, they're basically the creative team at the time for the adventures of Superman. Yeah. So would – 
in your opinion, is this is this a DC crossover event, or is this a Superman story that's spread to everything else? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I would say the presence of Parallax ends up making it a DC crossover event, especially um, it's almost like a, I don't know if JLA was, was Morrison writing JLA at this time or not? I can't. I think he I think that was still a couple of months away. We're very close. I think it It had even been announced. Yeah. So this is almost like it's a justice league level of event. And um, I think one of the reasons you would keep, I think I think you're right in saying, okay, hey, this is a this is the Adventures of Superman team, so they're they're gonna focus on Superman. But you're in a situation where if Superman is available, he is going to be the hero you're going to look to. So if you were to have this without Superman, you know, you can't put Batman on the in the front and center on the first issue. <laughs> because Batman, I'm sorry, Bat fans, Batman's not going to be able to solve this problem. Superman is the person you're going to look to to solve this problem. So super, if it's Superman-centric, it makes total sense because of the level of the catastrophe. The other reason I think um, that you would uh, you would put the Daily Planet, the Metropolis skyline on there, is that out of all the skylines that they would use in the DC Universe, um, the only other one that you would probably be able to recognize just like on site would be in, in the United States would be something like New York city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, uh, Gotham changes with whatever they're doing. And a lot of the other cities, unless you're a real big fan of flash or green arrow or, or, or wherever you don't necessarily know them like right off the bat, but that daily planet building is like, that's, Oh, that's Metropolis. So I, I think that's one of those. It's it, they're taking advantage of the fact that that's an iconic city within their their universe, and to get something that is that recognizable right off the bat, you actually have to go to a real world city like a New York or a London or Paris or, or something where where your audience, even the most casual of audiences, will say, "Oh, yeah," mm. and, and can react and. But yeah, the, the the team had been working on Superman as well. But there, there's it, I I like the fact that they kept coming back to the image because it it helps. It's a very TV serious thing to do, mm-hmm. but it, it does help with that sort of um, the emotional investment you end up having in the in the book. Uh, in addition to just wanting to see you know the heroes, the I, heroes come out on top. Oh, I I, I completely agree. And like the thing is, um, I'm kind of a sucker for seeing. Uh, you know these sort of, I guess, depictions of, of of these huge cities, on on this big sweeping scale. Because right here on page one, of the first issue, mm-hmm. uh, you get uh, the LexCorp tower. Like uh, you also get the Daily Planet building, as you were saying. You get GBS, but you also get to see really. I don't I don't think this is the entire city of Metropolis, but it's probably a good ninety something percent of it. And I don't know why, but these imaginary cities it it somehow does something to cement it in the re- i guess the reality of your mind like the theater of your imagination this is a real city and it, it you, you can see that it's even on the waterfront here and yeah. it's i don't know why but it, it just has that 
it, it just gives it that extra degree of credibility where you can now more fully relate to it in ways to just seeing random generic skyscrapers in a background, like two or three of them in a background yeah. in one panel, you wouldn't necessarily get. And uh, I, again, I mean, I'm not sure. Tr- I, I realize this is just the first page, but you know, I, and I'm not, I'm really not trying to beat this to death, but just like from the standpoint of what makes a great comic book page, this is just, this is, this is great. I love this. And I would actually like to have this original art, you know, I, I think it's called Virgin when it doesn't have any kind of, uh, you know, text or, or copy on it or anything. It's just, yeah. art bites. I would love to have this just without, without any of the uh, text on there, just to get the full, the full weight of the art and, um, you know, all the angles of the buildings and everything and how, you know, the lines will curve, you know, the way they would with a, a conventional like movie camera and things like that. And, Ugh, just love it. Like the yeah. uh, and what I'm saying is like that lower, like that sort of middle portion of the LexCorp building. You can see it sort of curves outward and then yeah. right back in. It's just this is just a phenomenally well done page. And again, not trying to beat it to death, but I just I love it. And um, one of the things about this story that kind of jumped out at me, you know, and I know we're kind of skipping all over the place here, and I'm That's sorry like- for that. I've got ADD. Um, as I'm flipping through the first issue here, uh, one of the things that kind of stood out to me in the story as I was reading it, the post-Zero Hour Legion of Superheroes, the rebooted Legion of Superheroes, Yes. they're a pretty big part of the story. Not the entire team, but I think there's like seven or eight uh, members of the team who got thrown through time because mm-hmm. no one's ever actually said so, but what I think was going on is that you know, somebody, some blowhard high up the uh, editorial totem pole said that this has got to affect the entire DC universe, including the Legion of Superheroes, who one would think of all uh, of all aspects of the mainstream DC universe are completely unaffected by this, or should be anyway. You've got to find a way to make this a threat to them as well. Yeah. And time travel is really the only way to get there. And so... That's sort of their entree into the story, and admittedly, they do contribute something, especially Brainiac 5, but in general, I just kind of have to ask myself, what purpose do they really serve in this story, you know? Yeah, because they don't – it's not the um, deus ex machina that you get with Final Crisis. Yes. Where you literally get the god machine. At the end of that story, because Brainiac 5 shows it to Superman, Superman memorizes it, they build it, and he sings the song and gets rid of Darkseid. This is a case of, they even say it, I think, in fact, I think it's kind of, they belabor the point a little bit that records have been lost over the centuries, so this is basically a legend to them, mm-hmm. as opposed to you know, what they know. And... It's hard to think of it that way since we live in a society where things are recorded significantly. Mm-hmm. Since the – I'd say for the last 150 to 200 years, we've had an enormous amount of our history preserved by the fact that just – of the advancement of media. Mm-hmm. But you're talking a thousand years and and so it, it makes logical sense that records will have been lost to time especially since it's hinted even though i don't think the stories were ever actually written that in the time between our present day dc universe in this story and 
the Legion of Superheroes, there were wars, there was devastation, there was rebuilding. So, you know, not everything remained the way it was and preserved. Things were obviously lost to time. But you're right. It's like, what purpose are you necessarily serving? Aside from the fact that you do get some little witty banter between Brainiac 5 and Lex Luthor. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, which dull, is fun. by the way. <laughs> yeah. Lex is so great. There's a point in issue two um, where I just wrote my my note was it was it issue two was my note was like this is so Lex Luthor and I don't yeah I wrote it down classic Lex and we can get to that in a little bit but yeah the so there's they at le- at the very least having them in there gives Carl Kiesel the chance to write some really good character moments um, and you have. My my history of the Legion is spotty. I've I've come in and out on the Legion of Superheroes, and I intend to go and get all of the five year later thing and and read a lot of what Levitt, Paul Levitt wrote because I had it at one point. And I read it. I have to reread it. But wasn't Pharaoh Lad pre crisis somebody who had died? Oh yes, that was one of the. Uh, uh... I've always thought that the Legion of Superheroes is the the unsung comic book pioneer. Mm-hmm. That you know they tended to do certain like racial integration. Yes, I think that I think there's a very strong argument that they did it as early as anybody and earlier than most mm-hmm. for uh, gender equality as yeah. early as anybody earlier than most. And then when you start talking about more like comic book tropes. Like the death of a character, and this is a real thing now. He's he's not coming back. This is it. Yeah. Pharaoh Lat, like the death of Pharaoh Lat, is one of those sort of hallmark moments of the Legion that say that this is a fun team. They do a lot of cool things, and you know they get to hang out with Superboy all the time. But you know what? They live in a very real, very dangerous place, and yeah. sometimes they, sometimes you know they don't always come out on top. And they, go ahead. No, they also had a lot of turnover and in their roster in a way that seemed realistic where the team that you would have five years from now would not necessarily be the team you had now or the leader because members went in and out mm-hmm. and were allowed to grow and it never seemed forced. It always seemed organic. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny that I don't think it's fair to say that the Legion of Superheroes is a futuristic Teen Titans. I don't think that's... Because to me, I mean, Teen Titans, there's there's a franchise to that to that team, yeah. to that concept that just... It, this is not a slam on the Legion. It just does not exist for the Legion, you know? No. This is... Um, I always thought of the Titans as being... Uh, I... I would almost call it like the child stars of the DC universe that are sort of banding together and kind of building their own club and figuring yeah. out how to be this on their terms. And yeah. rather than having to live – tried in vain to, to measure up to their – I guess their, their mentor's legend, mm-hmm. fulfill it on, uh, on their terms. Yeah. And the Legion, I always got that uh, – what I – my my history with the Legion is actually pretty spotty too. But what I've always associated with the Legion is this: 
just sort of adventurous teenage attitude of, you know, damn it, we can do it. You know, we know everything. You know, that sort of teenage cockiness. Yeah. And they have no idea what they're playing with half the time. And they rise to the occasion because they're just that good at what they do. But anyway, but I, I guess my point, is, my point in saying all of this is I completely don't even remember what you said. But I do remember <laughs> that it brought to mind the Titans and the idea that, you know, I feel like the Titans kind of explored those same that same, they had that same sort of pioneer sort of at times unsung pioneer spirit to them that they were doing things in comics that may or may not have ever been done before, but certainly had not been done in quite this way. You could say that about the Titans, and I think you could say it about the Legion. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and the Titans, at least when when Wolfman and Perez started, the, the comparison that the Titans often got was. Uh, the X-Men because that was at the height. They start at the height of the Claremont burn X-Men. Um, it's actually funny. You should mention the Titans because that's one of the only teams that isn't in this crossover. And the reason is because the Titans didn't exist at this point. Yeah. Um, do you, um, do you happen to have the preview that came with this. Oh, uh, I wish I did. Okay, it, I have. Um, I had. Uh, I went and got it digitally mm-hmm. through Comicsology, and on, on the beginning of issue one, Comicsology has attached the uh, the sneak preview, which it's not entirely vital to the rest of the story. Because I hadn't read it until um, this, I never got it when I was when I was younger either. And all it is, it's a four, five, six, seven page story where um, Dusk, our you know wayward traveler, comes upon New New Tamarin, which is the world that cory starfire and her sister and their race had settled after their home planet was blown up in the very very last issues of the new titans which was out at the tail end of 95 and the very beginning of 96 so maybe like six to nine months prior to this issue coming out mm-hmm. and that's the planet that the sunny that's the star of the sun eater destroys before it heads to earth so it's a pre-credit sequence Okay. Of of the it's the disaster happening very very quickly for a pre credit sequence for all of us to see ooh something's coming and then you know here's beautiful Earth and you know uh, that's how that's laid up and we've all seen those sequences in you know horror movies and we've all seen them in the in science fiction movies and stuff like you know something bad is going to happen let's and let's see what you know and, and then we wake up and our you know sunshine day um but the titans didn't exist so so Corey's the only one who who really shows up and and we were about a mm, six months to a year away from the first issue of the dan jurgens jurgens title but um what's funny and this is this is me just really briefly about the preview nitpicking something that nobody except somebody who read who read the new teen titans will get part of the reason that a lot of the people who the Tamaranians die is because they're a warrior race. So they basically go at it with, they go at it like Klingons would. Mm-hmm. They attack the thing. You know, it's, it almost is, it's very, um, 
the opening of Star Trek Six, where the where Praxis blows up, and or 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 very or the Star Trek the motion picture where the Klingons go after the V'ger cloud, and all get vaporized. It's it's very very much that. But the complication is that they don't understand what this woman is saying to them because she speaks a foreign language, and it's and uh, you know and and then she comes to Earth, and then the you know she gets hooked up, and they they translate everything. What bothers me is that. Tamaranians absorb language through physical contact, which was shown in like the first or second issue of the new Teen Titans where Starfire kissed Robin mm-hmm. and all of a sudden knew how to speak English. And she explained, that's how I get not, not only that, but in the Titans X-Men crossover that Chris Claremont wrote, wrote mm-hmm. Colossus says something in Russian and Starfire just grabs him and kisses him. Now, they don't have to kiss starfire was always like, well, it's just kind of more fun to do it that way. But it's like, (laughs) it's like, you don't understand what this woman is saying. Your entire race. All you have to do is touch her. And at least one of you will understand what you can say. It's like the idiot plot moment. You're like, it probably still would have turned out the same way. You know, they probably would have realized that, you know, maybe some of the more of them would have survived. They probably would have done the same thing and tried to attack it. But at the same time, it's just like, the con the, I'm, I'm nitpicking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm nitpicking and I'm really, really going deep with a nitpick, but I was just like, come on. But that's a nitpick that on something that really is not that big of a deal. Um, oh, fair but enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, let's see. Um, you know, when it, whenever you were saying all of that, what I thought yeah. you meant was, uh, the issue of previews magazine, um, yeah. and no, I, yeah, the, uh, the actual little, uh, like seven or whatever page it was, uh, preview. Yeah, no, that yeah. I actually, I do have. So yeah, okay, sorry yeah, about yeah. that. Totally misunderstood. You yeah, Cause they used to give those out in like comic shops for free mm-hmm. and sometimes they were done in color and sometimes they were done in black and white. And for whatever reason, I never got this one. I had the zero hour, one of the zero hour ones for years. I don't know what I did with it. But, well, I think uh, I picked this up from some back issue box for like, um, it might have actually been a a, a quarter. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Professor Allen. But um, <laughs> the yeah, I think it might have actually been. It was something like I just know that. Um, I, for, I don't even think this this has even got like a cover price on it, but it certainly I did not pay very much for it. I can assure yeah. you. So, but yeah, it was a interesting little uh, introduction to the story. And by then, I mean I'd already read it, but I just kind of wondered, you know. Eh, the the story kind of picks up. There's a term. There's a term for it, like in media res. Yes, in and, the middle of things. Yeah, and this preview, like you say, it does it, it does give you the sort of entry point into the story that I I think you need. So, either way, um, now from there, you know the uh, uh, dusk's ship. It it touches down. She mm-hmm. meets up, and there's actually this really cool uh, panel where uh, she's greeted by. Uh, when you think about it, I mean, this is about the time, like, if you and I were confronted with something like this, you and I would probably crap our pants. Uh, <laughs> you open up the hatch to your ship, and there's standing Superman, um, some of the most powerful members of the Legion of Superheroes, and, oh, yeah, the Metropolis Special Crimes Unit. Yeah. And who knows how many just uh, standard uniform police officers. And it does kind of say a little something-something about, I guess, preparedness and um, – in the DC universe, you know, especially in Metropolis, this is how ready to roll things are around there. 
And yeah. it's, you know, luckily, you know, the Legion of Superheroes were there, too, to add some muscle. But either way you look at it, you know, Superman and the uh, Special Crimes Unit, they've got this thing. Yeah. And um, it's they don't make a, you know, this is not a Chris Nolan movie where, you know, you you, you spend like, I don't know, half an hour, you know, tracing out, you know, what the plan of attack's going to be. It's just they're there and you see they've already got the infrastructure in place. Yeah. And to me, that's the more powerful way to tell a story anyway. And it's just and, and it doesn't hurt that, you know, Superman is um, drawn by Stuart friggin Eminem. So I shouldn't need to say anything besides that. No, you don't need to say anything besides that. So, oh, OK. Yeah. So shut up. Yeah. Magnus. It's, oh, it's no, it's it's just it's a great shot. Just I dig it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, anyway, so, you know, then from there, you know, we get into this um, this really handy little bit of the story where the Legion, they understand exactly, you know, what Dusk is saying, but it takes time for everyone else to to uh, uh, get up to speed. Eventually they do. And it, it's explained to them what exactly it is that they're up against. And again, this speaks to, I guess, the infrastructure that already exists to enable this sort of a rapid response where pretty much the entire um, cast of characters in the DC universe is pretty much assembled in the span of just moments. And yeah. on the like when you say it like that, it actually sounds a little bit hard to believe that all of these people doing all of these things on all of their different schedules could be so easily assembled. But then you, you think, you know, what a pain in the balls it was to put everybody together back in a zero hour. And in universe, yeah, I mean, I could totally see where, you know, one of the things they might say is, you know what, guys, what we need to do is just have everybody, since it was the 90s, have everybody on some kind of a Rolodex. And uh, my people will call your people and then we'll just meet Metropolis because, let's face it, that's probably where shit's going down anyway. And so uh, you guys all just uh, convene here, just give it a couple of hours, and, uh, you know, we can start the meeting. And uh, there's got to be, like, what is this, like 20-some-odd characters on this page? Yeah, it's... It's just really powerful. Like, yeah. the, the one that's really, like, stands out as missing, and we know why from the tie-in and everything, but the only one that I see that's, like, flagrantly missing is uh, Supergirl. Actually, now that I look at it, Steel's missing too. But fuck it, that's not the point. The point is, you got a crapload of people. Oh yeah, and yeah. Um, I just really dig this. Again, this is just another in a uh, in a mini series full of all kinds of badass pages and panels and moments and stuff. This is another standout just in the first issue. This is a real. Um, this is a great series for uh, Barbara Gordon as well, because I believe Oracle's coordinating. At one point later in the series, she's doing a lot of the uh, – she's like the point person mm -hmm. for communications and things. And um, that's what her role will be in Justice League and JLA down the line. Uh, and her role has essentially been that, but it's been more and more behind the scenes when she first started out. She comes out – she kind of – they bring her out a little bit more and more over the course of, of years mm -hmm. through whatever book she's been in. Um, which is something that, uh, you know, and, and that I know more and more about because of Stella and Batgirl, the Oracle. But but here you've got like her really f playing that role really, really well later on when they are trying to coordinate whatever relief effort they can do. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's an either issue three or four. And uh, and she's basically their their eyes and ears 
um, and and they're 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 a logistics person and stuff like that. And and it's I like that. I like that they have somebody like that to for something as as huge as this and or as this many people as well. Yeah, and since we're on the subject, you know, this was one of the first times, like the first occasions that I had to, I guess, appreciate a post-killing joke Barbara. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there was a point for like two, maybe three years after she was paralyzed where I truly don't think DC really knew what to do with her. I mean, they had the shock value of, you know, Alan Moore paralyzing, you know, Barbara Gordon as if to sell the seriousness of this particular Joker story. Well, we've got a paralyzed barber. But then it was like, no one really thought too much beyond that. And hmm? go ahead. Unless, unless you were John Ostrander. Yeah. Well, pretty, yeah, pretty. Yeah. (laughs) And so I hadn't really kept up with goings on with Barbara. I just kind of thought, well, whatever, she's going to be in a wheelchair from now on. And she's going to be at best peripheral to any story that's going on. And if you know anything about goings on and, the DC universe starting in the mid nineties. And then I I think until fairly recently, you know, you're probably laughing at me right now, but just keep in mind, I mean, that, that little prejudice, it came from DC just seemingly not knowing what the fuck to do. And so I feel like I'm kind of well justified there. Shut up. Don't judge me. So no, 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 you are because, um, Ostrander was writing suicide squad and it was a little corner of the DCU that was not, you know, Suicide Squad is the very definition of a cult classic. Pretty much. And in her first appearances in Suicide Squad as Oracle, you did not know it was her. It was it was so – like Ostrander played the long game with that. And it was revealed bit by bit like who this was behind the curtain and everything. And it's not like everybody in the DC universe while she was being Oracle knew she was Oracle. Because she was always this kind of computer-generated program. And from what I recall, it was the Bat family who, of course, knew her mm-hmm. and maybe a couple of other people. But I don't know. I'm seeing Jade and Obsidian here and Blue Beetle. And they may not have known that that was Barbara Gordon. They probably knew that was just here's your here's your contact person. And um, uh I think my first exposure to her as Oracle was probably in the Chuck Dixon Robin, one of the Robin series, uh, either the one of the miniseries or the ongoing, because mm-hmm. uh, Dixon would would take what Ostrander started and, and run with it. Yes, he would. Um, in, in a way that was phenomenal. So. And um, very true, all of that. Yeah. And. Um, the um, now from there we get this sort of I almost want to call this the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark scene where we get a little bit of a breakdown on exactly what the Sun Eater is, what it's yeah. doing, what the stakes are, and honestly, you kind you you need to have a scene like this that kind of you know outlines the threat and everything. But honestly, it's one of those things where if you can't see a problem with the Sun effectively going out, um. I, I really don't know what to tell you, dude. I, there's a Facebook page called I Fucking Love Science. You should maybe check into that. Um, I, I don't I, – I got nothing, you know? So it's it's an audi- – it's totally there for the audience. It's, it's your expositional news network. It's your – it's the scientist in the disaster movie explaining mainly for the audience what the 
weird pseudosciences behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it happens a couple of times over the series, too. Yeah. It, it's just it, to keep us acclimated to what's going on. And um, in this case, though, there's a nice little bit of character that's injected into this. And again, I mean, we're not dealing with rookies here. I mean, this is a very much a veteran, except mm-hmm. for the Legion of Superheroes, this is very much a veteran um, DC universe where they're formulating, I think, a, a fairly workable plan. I mean, as far as like your first effort, like your first attempt to take this thing on, this is it's a viable plan. And yeah. they, they come together with it. Very quickly. Well, A, because the plot needs them to. B, you know, the real resolution. We have to get through a few more issues before we can really get there. But it still speaks to the fact that, you know, these are people of action. They've dealt with this this type of thing before. And they've got some idea of how best to use their resources, uh, you know, like their personnel, their human resources, to send out um, on this sort of, um, I guess, the strike mission to uh, make first contact, so to speak, with the Sun Eater and just try for god's sake just try yeah and you know if this doesn't work then we can come up with something else you know but you know basically just keep hammering at this thing and this was one of those moments that just really stuck with me when i when i was a kid because of the fact that i kind of went into zero hour expecting a sort of a reboot and universe-wide didn't really get one you know this was very much affirming clarifying but affirming you know history that had happened in the dc universe and so these aren't rookies is what i'm saying and um everyone there mostly has some something to contribute uh even if it's just a, you know other ideas or to ask questions or, or just whatever and uh it just it, it, this just from a technical standpoint and i'm not trying to beat this to death too much but it's just from a technical standpoint this is actually done i think really well so yeah there you go and um which pretty much leads us into, you know, the I guess the hero's first pass at making all this work. And one of the things that was a little bit confusing to me in all of this was goings on with I think at the time he was called Sentinel, but Alan Scott. Scott. And I'd collected um, Green uh, the uh, Kyle Rayner Green Lantern title uh-huh. as much as I could, but you know I was sort of running on a budget at the time and. Let's face it, you know, one must prioritize, you know, yeah. when you're a young comics fan and you don't have a car to drive to the uh, comic shop just anytime you want. Even if you did, it, it still wouldn't matter because you don't necessarily have the money to just buy everything like you might want. Yeah. So I wasn't completely – I didn't totally understand what exactly it was that was going on, you know, with, um, with Alan Scott or for that matter with uh, Guy Gardner. You know, where are their rings and everything and – Actually, the, the answer to that is rather simple. You know, Ron Mars wanted Kyle Rayner to be the only ring bearer in the DC universe. And so that kind of raises the question of what do you do with the Green Lantern Corps? What do you do with Alan Scott? What do you do with Guy Gardner? And so that's, you know, why we're seeing some of the things that we're seeing. But I wasn't fully aware of that at the time. But I will say I do kind of like the it, – it's a little 90s riffic, but I do sort of like this, uh, this uh, uniform that Alan Scott's wearing and – in this story it's got that sort of sun or star or whatever that is on his chest yeah. just kind of a neat looking outfit it's by far it's not the gaudiest outfit the guy's ever worn let's face it no and uh, but the what we see you know going on you know from all of this is basically the heroes get the shit beaten out of them by the sun eater who 
basically decides that he needs to have an appetizer, and that's that action by itself is pretty much enough to almost wipe out the team. Um, but they have to basically come back home, lick their wounds, and at least for the moment, the sun's been enshrouded by the uh, Sun Eater, and that leads us pretty much to the last page of issue one. It's another shot of the Metropolis skyline. It's fairly similar to what we saw before, except now it's it's uh, cloaked in absolute darkness, and there's only a residual amount of light coming off the sun. And, you know, dun-dun-dun! Yeah, exactly. You know, what, what, what happens next, you know? So... Anyway, very powerful stuff. So I guess, you know, overall, like what what was it about the first issue that like that we haven't talked about that kind of stood out for you here? No, I like what uh, what I had written down was that um, I liked the whole solution they came up with of trying to create a second sun and then just having that backfire because it's a very it's a great movie sort of thing. And it's a really good superhero type of solution to that. You know, it's. Like, it's the superhero equivalent of, well, let's just blow it out of the sky. You know, or, or you know, we're going to, we're going to, let's, let's shoot a missile at it or something. You know, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's them doing that on some level. Um, and I also like that, uh, that even early on, I like that shot of, uh, that Lex Luthor's like, yep, honeymoon's over. And because I like how Lex is involved in this story. I think it, it's, it's them using him really, really well. Yeah. And that actually leads into, uh, you know, like goings on that were happening with, uh, you know, Lex and the Contessa, Alexandra Del Portenza, whatever the hell the rest of her name is in the main Superman books. And that was a little bit of a, kind of a, what the fuck subplot, but, um, whatever it, that's, that's where it's, yeah, that's not something I was, I was, reading Superman on and off at this point. So I can't honestly remember what exactly uh, was going on with Lex at this moment in time. Well, he was basically looking for someone to sire him an heir. Okay. So uh, that's really the beginning and end of, uh, of that story. And it's, it's like, wow, the, the guy that mastered uh, cloning and genetic engineering, he needs, he needs a woman to do this for him. Okay. Well, fine. We'll, uh, we'll run with that. So, but anyway, so um, anyway, overall, uh, just nice, fun issue. And I thought that this actually masterfully set up uh, goings on with this story and, you know, the way that things are going to play out for the rest of the um, little miniseries here. Yeah. And that leads us into the, I guess, the second, uh, the second issue. And I got to tell you, I really love this cover. And those of you out there who like um, that I want to say it was like 2006, 2007, this weekly uh, miniseries, uh, 52. Two. I was going to say, this cover looks familiar. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it very much does. And at least with 52, I can see like the relevance of that image of Wonder Woman's sword piercing Superman's cape with Batman's uh, mask and cow, uh, cape just kind of dangling off it. I can see the relevance there. I don't completely understand like what's being expressed here in this cover it's a badass cover image don't get me wrong but it almost feels like it's trying to tie in a little too much with that superman 75 you know flag cape yeah so you could have you could have had the cityscape in the background with the end is here 
just like basically erase the superhero elements of this and it would I think it would have actually worked better as a cover but I don't know if that sells comics I don't either but it's like the message that we're giving uh, that we're getting here is uh, like somehow like the the trinity of the DC universe are just well uh, sun's out we're fucked so um, uh, deuces y'all see you later Put um, your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> pretty much. So, but whatever. Like I say, it's powerful com- cover image. I yeah, just don't yeah. understand where, where, where the fuck this is coming from. Yeah, exactly. So, um, anyway, now from there we get a little bit of literal exposition news network updates from Jimmy, mm-hmm. who at the time had um, he'd either quit his job at the Daily Planet or he'd been shown the door, and whatever happened happened. He. He was pretty much slumming it at uh, WGBS as a news anchor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is one of those things where sort of like real life intrudes upon the story a little bit. The impression that I've always gotten was that, you know, Jimmy Olsen is very much, a, 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 you know, this vintage of uh, DC publishing history, kind of the consummate, you know, uh, Generation X uh, kid. And it's one of those moments where I think like teenagers and uh, college kids today might actually go to work for a newspaper because that format has had a little bit more life, I think, than anybody was expecting. Probably thanks yes. to uh, Apple. I mean, let's just put it out there. If it wasn't for the iPad, I truly do believe print media today would all be dead. But – that's you know who the hell saw that one coming and in the 90s i kind of have to think that jimmy would have bypassed the daily planet altogether and just gone to work for gbs just straight out of the box again it's not one of those things that's you know going to ruin the story for you or anything because if you can't buy into the idea of jimmy olsen working at the daily planet get your shit and get out but yeah, he could have done let's see this was if we're talking burn era into when he's this is the mid nineties. It depends on he's he's the lowest rung on the. He does get fired at one point in the early nineties. He gets laid off. Mm-hmm. I remember it was like Superman, Man of Steel, like number one or like right around that time. Yeah, and and it was because of if I recall my from Crisis to Crisis correctly, it's because the death of Lex Luthor had devastated. Metropolis's economy because LexCorp didn't was kind of running around like a chicken with its head cut off mm-hmm. literally and there was the I mean in the conveniently Metropolis's economic fortunes were reflecting the real world at the time because this is the early 90s we were in a recession so there were a lot of people Jimmy's age who either were losing their jobs because it was basically last hired first fired where they couldn't find jobs at all mm-hmm. because they just the jobs just weren't there, and that was the that was one of the major issues that Generation X came ended up with. They either went to work, they either couldn't find work, or they went to work in really shitty jobs because they needed to pay the bills. Yeah. So Jimmy could have been working really, really low wage. The planet um, that could have been, you know, it would have been an intern, a, a sought after internship at the time, because mm-hmm. print media was still, you know. But I think you're right. He would have ended. He would have bounced over to a, to another medium at some point, probably television. Put this story five years in the future, 
of this, put this in about 99, 2000, and he's working at a startup or a, or something, an online division of something. Yeah, he would have done something along the lines of the Drudge Report, like one of those aggregators. Yeah. Um, actually, maybe not, but whatever. Or Huffington Post, use your favorite. Huff, uh, yeah, Huffington Post. Uh, yeah, he, he would have been – he would have been um, – if you've ever seen the movie Shattered Glass – Oh yeah, uh, Philip uh, Glass. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, not Philip Glass. Uh, Stephen Glass or something. It's... Stephen Glass. Yeah, Stephen Glass. Uh, the way Hayden Christensen plays him, and yeah, and uh, yeah, it's. I believe it or not, if if anybody in the audience hasn't seen it, rent it. It's really good. And Steve Zahn and Rosario Dawson play these two people working for the online arm of Forbes, who eventually are the ones who. Uh, Blow the whistle. Yeah, they blow the whistle on him, and and I think Jimmy Olsen probably would have ended up in a role like that where he he was working for like you know either a Huffington Post or or something like where it's like you know CNN.com or WashingtonPost.com or something where you know it was this was a tryout and we can you know let's see what we can do with this because the right. early two thousands were really interesting when it came to online media. I I tend to agree with that. Yeah. Either way, though. Um, Boy, talk about getting off topic. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, I would I would almost want to liken uh, like the post death of Lex Luthor, Lex Corp, not knowing what the fuck they're doing. I would almost want to compare that to like the six months, maybe a year and a half ish after the death of Steve uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah, goings on at Apple where they really like manifestly didn't know what the fuck they were doing, mm. and it's sometimes easy to overlook how much one man can shape everything at uh you know you have the right person doing the right job at the right time and then you lose that it's it's really something else so but anyway uh the story picks up with and i kind of like this this sort of uneasy alliance between lex luther and superman yeah neither uh, let's face it it's fucking it's lex luther and it's superman so it's not like there's any love lost there but at the same time there is a higher there is a higher peril that's going on here. And um, so I don't know. It's just, it works for me. And and from there we sort of bridge over into goings on with Oracle. And this was my first real, like we were saying before, this is my first real exposure to her like as Oracle. And I got to tell you, dude, I mean, it it took me a sec to kind of get my, my head around, you know, what she was doing, especially since I wasn't reading birds of prey at the time. I had no idea, you Mm. know, what, you know, what was happening there. And it just worked so well for me that, you know, it gives this character purpose. But, you know, and at this at the time, I, this felt a little bit heretical. But I thought, you know what? I think I kind of like Barbara more as Oracle than I ever did as Batgirl. This is I, this plays to all of her strengths, um, or at least strengths that she could have. And I just thought this was an incredibly clever idea. And I remember thinking at the time, you, somebody had to come up with this. And whoever it is, that guy gets the prize. You know, this was this was an amazing idea. And there, I think there are a number of fans who are like that. And and there are a number of people who are like who see her as a hero. You know, and it's because not just because they put somebody who was disabled into a job. You know, like, and gave him a job to do. They just didn't kind of put her off into the corner and had her whine about how, you know, the Joker shot her. It's they they gave her a job. They had her do something, but they wrote her as so well. Mm-hmm. And I think 
that's the most important thing when it comes to any character, um, especially one who is of a I hate to use the word minority, but you know where I'm getting at, where where they they will end up being representative to, you know, somebody who is in a wheelchair in this case. And you don't want him to feel like the token wheelchair character. And Barbara Gordon never did because of the way she was written as a just a really strong character. I agree. And this huge like wall of uh, TVs or computer monitors or whatever the hell it is. All of these, by the way, are widescreen, incidentally. Yes. Um, She's probably got Bruce Wayne money. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) And the thing that, just apart from, I I mean, again, this is Stuart Eminem that we're talking about here. So apart from just kind of lusting over the art, um, this is a little bit of universe building going on here in as much as, These are the one that really stands out. The one that's most prominent that I recognize is it's actually a panel from Supergirl number three, where mm-hmm. uh, uh, Supergirl is getting punched in the head uh, from behind by some I don't know street lowlife, and she's basically. And we're not going to get into this comic, uh, at least not in this episode. But um, you know, there there's goings on with Supergirl and things that are happening in Midvale and all that, and you know. Things that are things that are going on. Meanwhile, right above that, you have uh, this little that little shot of Superman shaking Lex Luthor's hand from the previous page, and then other things. I don't really recognize what what if anything these other these other panels are coming from. Um, but it does remind you that you know what this affects. In, in case it wasn't obvious, the sun being the sun going out really affects the entire DC universe, and so you're seeing sort of. These little snatches and glimpses of what's happening in the rest of the world. Meanwhile, you've got, you know, this this uh, I don't even know what like the High Council, if that's what you want to call it, assembling in Metropolis in order to deal with the threat. And it, I don't know, it's just universe building. That's the best I can think of. So yeah, yeah, and and this is where the just to very briefly talk about the crossovers. This is what made this as a crossover series work really well. Um, way back when I was first collecting comics, the guy that I asked the guy at the comic store after I had tracked down all the back issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths whether or not it was worth collecting crossovers, and he likened the crossovers to the side dish, the garnish. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think he used the word gravy. That's what these crossovers very much feel like. They just kind of flesh out individual little pieces of what's going on while this story is going on. Mm-hmm. But you don't necessarily need to read all of them to get the full story of the final night. Some of their crossover series, you have to do that, which gets frustrating because you know we don't don't have that money. But yeah, but that's what you're getting with here on that page too, where where all these little little vignettes of, okay, here's this person saving this person and this person saving this person. And, you know, partially because you want to tie it into all the DC universe. You want to build the universe and partially because wonder woman lifting up a fire truck and flying it across the sky from a burning building to a true burning building. is cool. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's just like, (laughs) uh, yeah, really enough said there. The, um, like to your point though, like the idea of those uh, crossovers being sort of like standalone things that enhance but don't really contribute to the story. The first time I really noticed that was 
and I know I keep beating this drum, but just, you know, I, I guess that's going to be the theme of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Zero Hour, you had, yeah. um, honestly, what I remember of the Superman uh, tie-ins, those were maybe the weakest of the bunch, but the Batman tie-ins to Zero Hour were fucking gold. There was this, yes. there was uh, probably my favorite was, uh, it's actually kind of a toss-up, actually, between Superboy and and uh, Robin. Yeah, but, those were both great. Yeah, they were. And the thing about it that, about the Robin tie-in that kind of made it work was Tim never really had that same sort of infer- uh, inferiority complex regarding Dick Grayson that other characters in his position might have. Yeah. He was nevertheless aware of the fact, though, that Dick Grayson kind of is the founder of the feast. There is something there is a symbol here that dick pretty much built single-handedly that at the very least tim has to not stink up and here you have uh, the story where teenage tim meets teenage dick and tim's trying to play it cool but i don't know it's just it's incredibly moving it's incredibly powerful and we'll get into the robin crossover soon enough for final night but it just it kind of reminds me of I guess the sort of the takeaway lesson of DC comics at the time that even if you didn't like, you didn't necessarily like, you know, the main series itself, whether it was this or underworld unleashed or just whatever, the tie-ins were more, they weren't plot oriented. They were more concept oriented. They were taking the basic framework of what was happening in, in the main story and then telling their own story within that, I guess, within that, that sort of concept within that yeah. milieu and what you came away with were sometimes these incredibly fucking powerful stories. And I don't know. I just – I really I, – I'm almost tempted to say that if if all you want is to just read the story, it's pretty much confined to issues one, two, three, and four of Final Night. You don't really go, need to go too far beyond that. Maybe by the Parallax special. Yeah. If, if you want to flesh out the Hal Jordan end of it. And, and that's a really well-written um, – piece but it's not necessarily vital you know i just agree add, it adds a little bit but it's not it's not you know if you don't read it it's not gonna ruin it for you i agree but if you decide that you do want to pursue the crossovers you can read as many of them or as few of them as you see fit and you're getting like I say, just some really effective – again, I feel like I'm beating this to death, so I'm just going to move on. Yeah. Fuck it. Um, anyway, point is uh, from there we move into um, this moment where I, I I dare not exaggerate in saying Wonder Woman picks up a friggin' fire truck and, and uh, flies it in yes. to, a, to deal with a fire. And I hadn't really read a whole lot of uh, Wonder Woman, and the reason for that is, again, one must prioritize whenever you're – a young collector, and you have to sort of pick and choose what you can get. Wonder Woman is something under other circumstances I might have actually wanted to pick up, since I think John Byrne was uh, was handling Wonder Woman at this point. But I want to say yes. Um, you keep talking. I'm checking. Oh, sure. And um, and so what you have is Wonder Woman, who's a – she's an outsider, not alienated, but sort of outsider. And she has a very – she's sort of um, – an alpha type in her in her thinking. There's a problem. I will solve it, and I will probably use strength in order to do it. And so she, it, to her, it's completely natural to just pick up a fire truck and 
fly it in. And it's just very creative thinking, very outside the box that I think, I don't know, it just, it, it says so much about who she is and words are kind of failing me here, but I just, it, it's, it, it's a very cool moment. And again, Stuart M, uh, Eminem and Art, it just always takes it up to that next level. Now, did you, did you find what you're looking for? Mm. I'm on Mike's Amazing World, of course. Ah. And yes, we are about a year, a little more than a year into the John Byrne run on uh, Wonder Woman. Ah. Well, and um, which it, is a pretty good, which is a pretty good run. Um, I have some some of the things he did. I was like not so happy about, but but overall, I remember enjoying what I uh, what I did read of it. Well, a burn would have been what would have uh, attracted me into reading Wonder Woman. I like I don't know if this is true, but then as now, the perception I always had was that George Perez basically came along post-crisis and pretty much did to Wonder Woman what John Byrne did to Superman. Yes. After which once he left, that was kind of it. Nothing really happened. It yeah, well Perez from what I understand, Wonder Woman at the end of the Bronze Age pre-crisis was kind of a disaster. Yeah. And Perez came in and really did something to the character. The only drawback was that and and, and Mike Grell kind of did this with Green Arrow as well. They kind of kept the, her separate. She would show up in things every once in a while, but really um you didn't. You felt like she was off in her kind of her own corner, and then when Perez left after War of the Gods, um, I want to say it was William Messner Loeb's took over, and that they right. they made a concerted effort to reintegrate her back into the DC, where like there were more guest stars and other people showing up, and things like that. And Messner Loeb's run ends with issue one hundred. Uh, and then Byrne comes in, and Messner Loeb's run is highlighted by that storyline where there's another contest, and Artemis wins, and then Diana – Artemis wears the Wonder Woman costume, and Diana wears that awful-looking bustier jacket and biker shorts outfit for – Yeah, what the fuck and, was that about? And then Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 100 is this big fight between um, Artemis and, and Diana – and these demons, drawn by uh, Mike uh, Deodato Jr., mm-hmm. it is the most '90s, like bad '90s comic. It is just, it's just a lot of, well, a lot of. Tro- it hits a lot of the tropes of the '90s. I mean, number one, yeah, this sort of, um, it was trendy for a while, where you had a hero replaced by somebody else. Yeah. You had this incredibly hyped, like beyond all reason, artist taking over Mike Diodato Jr. Yeah. And then on top of all of that, the bad girl fad. You remember that? Ugh. And it felt like this sort of was tying into all of those. And I was thinking, holy shit, like the trifecta of 90s cliches and you're getting all of them in one go. Well, the thing is, is that Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman's not TNA. It's just when you have Paris, you have Byrne, you have Greg Rucka, him, Phil Jimenez, Greg Rucka, all did really, really good runs on Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is not, you know, she's wearing a, she's obviously wearing a, a bustier and, and you know, and boots and, and a 
what kind of looks like a you know like a bathing suit in, in some regard. Right. But she's not like she's not Emma Frost. You know, it's it's there, there's a power found in Wonder Woman, and any writer who does that, you know, and and uses that uses that strength, that power, um, makes her. Uh, writes the character better than like, you know, hey, Wonder Woman is wearing an outfit that doesn't cover everything. Let me shove her bottom up her up her ass for five panels on the page or something. You know, like it just it, right. it never, ever works when they try to do like, you know, Wonder Woman is tits and ass because it just it's that's not who the character ever really was. I agree. And there's a. I, at like this outsider quality that she's got where mm-hmm. there's a certain cultural eh, illiteracy that she like or pop culture illiteracy i guess that uh, she's got where she actually's on the fuck what page is this this is uh, page 8 in the second okay. issue yeah um in the second panel she actually um says she speaks the uh, lyrics to the song <laughs> You know, that it's, uh, you know, these partiers who keep saying it's the end of the world as they know it, but they feel fine. And, like, anyone else there, maybe not the Legion, I guess, but, like, anyone else in this series would probably understand uh, the attitude and mentality behind that, but not her. And it's it's this sort of hip-to-be-square moment where she doesn't understand, but she's still badass anyway, and it's just, I, I, I just dig that. I, it works for me. Yeah. Now I want to see her and Chris Evans, Captain America, in a story. <laughs> I got that reference. <laughs> I wonder what the Captain America crossover would be really good, though. But um, but yeah, it just you just it, it remind you reminded me of that scene of the Avengers. I got that reference. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. And it's a cute little moment. Um, that's it's just one panel, and then we go. Uh, can I say that I really like, um, even though for whatever reason Batman's in Paris, um, I really like the scene in the Louvre with him and Vandal Savage. Yes. Um, however, it's a creepy fucking scene, though. I'll say it's that. a creepy scene. Vandal Savage is a great villain, but oh, I I don't know what Rashakul was doing at this point. Right. But. Damn if they didn't miss it. Now, for all I know, he was just kind of out of the picture and they weren't allowed to use him or whatever the heck was going on in, in the Batman titles anyway. But he would have been great for at least a scene in here somewhere. The number of times this person has tried to basically destroy the Earth to save humanity. Right. You know, uh, at least, a, you know, kind of swap out Vandal Savage for Razakul. That, that would have been really, really interesting. But this is a fun scene. It's just, you know... Um, hit Batman sneaking around and, and this creepy, creepy Vandal Savage talking to the Mona Lisa bit. It's it's funny and it's it's very very well done. Well, and that was actually something I was going to ask you about. Um, this to me felt, except for the creepy factor, you know. I mean, maybe that's why they didn't want to associate this with Rachel Ghoul because yeah, whatever his hangups might be. He, he just never strikes me as this sort of pervy lurk, you know, whereas you can do that with Vandal Savage. Oh, yeah. And shit, you know, <laughs> um, the other thing, though, is that I kind of wondered if maybe just, you know, apart from character, I think and I, gee, I should have I should have double checked this before we got into this. But I think 
this was either the lead up to or the falling action from the legacy storyline in um, the Batman titles. And so I think, I think so. you, you could justifiably argue, you know what? Rachel Ghoul truly was occupied with other things, and it would be a little difficult to believe that he could be this many places at once. But at the other, uh, on the other hand, the world's about to end, so fuck it. Um, I don't know. I, I could see it either way. But yeah, this is – man, that is some creepy, creepy stuff. Yeah. And um, although I will say that one of the things about the Mona Lisa that I've just fucking – I've never understood, why do we give a damn why she's smiling? People smile in pictures. What – what the fuck's the mystery here? It's because the smile. Um, I, I think it's just because it's sort of an enigma, an enigmatic expression. Um, the uh, most people, most people tell you, and if, if you've ever actually been to Paris and seen it, it's not a very, very large painting. Mm -hmm. It's, it's. Um, I don't know what the exact dimensions are, but it's, uh, it is a, it's a portrait. Right. And it's a portrait. It's like, uh, I don't know, it's like a not an eight by ten, but maybe something a little bit bigger than that. It's it's not it's not you know, very, very huge. Mm -hmm. um, having been there and seen it, it's like you go there to see it. It's yeah, it's really interesting. There are pieces in the Louvre that are even Da Vinci pieces that are just way more, you know, his uh, some of his other paintings and some of the other paintings in, in the Louvre are just are way more. um impressive and it'd take a lot more to get into. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's one of those, it's, it, it's the enigmatic nature of the smile, um, who Da Vinci was. And there's just the, the kind of the legend right. of it, you know, it's a victim of its own popularity. And if there's one piece you're going to steal from the Louvre, yeah, that's <laughs> pretty much going to well be it. that yeah. one. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Um, Detective Comics 700 is dated August of 96. So Legacy had just happened. Oh, okay. So, yeah, that's probably a good explanation as to why Raj Rackle doesn't make any sort of appearance. Right. Well, and as I say, I think there's a – except for the, the lurk factor of it, there's – you know, this actually um, – this could have been – you know, Rachel Ghoul. So I, I was, yeah. I, I, it's nice to know I'm not the only one who wondered yeah. about that. But, uh, but Vandal Savage is basically at this point like a Highlander villain. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, and it's, and it works. It works on so many levels. Uh, then from there, uh, uh, Rach, Vandal Savage, uh, mm -hmm. Al Ghoul, I guess, um, opens yeah. fire on the Batman. And Superman catches the bullets, but only barely. His yeah. powers are starting to fade. And, this is one of those just interesting character moments of Superman that Superman is Superman because he's Superman. He's not Superman because of his powers. And yeah. he's always going to fight through, try his best, and do whatever's necessary to win. And even if that means making the ultimate sacrifice, he's prepared to do that. Um, and so for him to, you know, whisk Batman over to. Uh, over to Paris. This is kind of an interesting character moment for him in that this sort of enhances Batman's legend a little bit in uh, Vandal Savage's mind, if nothing else. Yeah. And, you know, Superman's the one who's doing the heavy lifting with catching the bullets and everything, but it's still, I don't know. It's just, a, it's a really neat little moment. I like it. And it, um, 
it does emphasize though that Superman's really starting to sweat now when it comes to whatever you know what he has to do to get the job done. Whereas just a week ago, he could do stuff like this in his sleep and yeah. you know wouldn't miss a beat doing it. And now he's really having to sweat for it. And it's it it's basically a subconscious way of enhancing the stakes without mm-hmm. another page of the sun being swathed in shadow. It's just it's yes. I don't know. It's it's the kind of storytelling. I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this that is not a slam or an insult to Jeff Johns. Fuck it. If Jeff Johns was okay. writing this, we'd have another just another full page splash of the sun being enveloped in shadow. Yeah. Whereas uh, Kiesel shows Superman starting to struggle to do his job, and it's just the way that two separate writers have. I think in this case, you know, there's something to be said for showing the 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 ramifications of this rather than showing us the problem and then telling us what the ramifications are. So And hey, if Brian Michael Bendis was writing it, this scene would have been in ten pages, so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No. <laughs> I could barely catch those bullets. Really? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It, I know it has two ram. Um, it has it has ramifications in the Superman books because doesn't this lead right into the wedding, and then eventually, him getting his powers back eventually leads to the electric blue period. Pretty much. I okay. Starts. I'm not misremembering that. Yeah, because um, I know that I know that the wedding. Um, he gets a haircut. Finally. Yeah. Um. The other the other thing that I love is the next page, page twelve. It's this is the line where I said classic Lex. He really shouldn't. We really shouldn't rely on him much for more much more than crowd control. The <laughs> saving the world is now up to me, and the rest of you, of course. <laughs> oh, I love that line. I like it too. The so o- Lex Luthor. <laughs> the other thing though is that the pre-crisis Lex Luthor, or sorry, the post-crisis Lex Luthor especially this vintage of him, he's not remembered as being this incredibly intelligent and, um, you know, just brilliant genius that he was in the pre-crisis era. And what we're seeing here is Lex sort of reasserting that aspect of his, uh, of his personality. And it's not enough that he's, that he's brilliant. It's hell. It's not even enough that he's the smartest guy in the room. It's not even enough that he lets you know that he's the smartest guy in the room. He's got to belittle Superman somehow in the process, and it it just it uh, it, it speaks so much to character. While at the same time, it's uh, it, it sort of furthers the uh, the narrative that yeah, we're coming up now with other ways of doing this, and we've got a couple of ideas here. It enhances character while at the same time advancing plot. And I'm not trying to beat this this up too much, except to say that it's not necessarily every writer who can do this. You know, um, can develop character, who actually fuck it, who can transition from one scene to another, tie the two scenes together, develop character, advance narrative, and um, I don't know. It's just it's. from a technical standpoint, because I, I, I kind of consider myself to be – I'm not a writer, but I am a writing guy. Yeah. And it's hard not to appreciate the sort of pissing contest that Lex and uh, Brainiac 5 have with one another. And at the same time, this sort of – it's sort of a uh, post-crisis version of the the Luther Brainiac team. Yeah. Where 
these two brilliant characters are teaming up together, and there's no two ways about it. Brainiac 5, there's no way that he would even have lunch with Lex Luthor. That's how fucking far ahead of it he is. But at the same time, Lex is more familiar with, at at the time of this story, modern-day technology in ways that Brainiac 5 just isn't, and so they need each other. There's parody there, whereas in the pre-crisis era... One of the questions I always ask myself is if Brainiac – or sorry, Brainiac is really all that in a bag of chips, the fuck does he need Lex Luthor for? I mean – No, that's a good point. It's like, it's like you sit, sitting down and arguing philosophy with a caveman. I mean the fuck do you need him for? You know. Yeah. So here both of them have something that they're bringing to the table. With Lex, it's technological awareness. With Brainiac 5, it's this – he's got the combined IQ of the entire planet. But he's playing with Tinker Toys, so he needs he needs access to this technology. So yeah, it, it works for me, is what I'm saying. And I guess I'm alone there. So okay, cool. No, no, no. I'm agreeing with you. I, I there's really nothing that much else that I could add to that. Oh, yeah, sorry. To be honest uh, with you, I'm sorry. Oh. No, no, no. And I was also trying to I was also trying to think of anything else about this issue before we go into three. And a lot of this is just um, – it's not fighting McFightenstein, but it's – part of it setting up the parallax stuff because Kyle just disappears on his mission uh, because things are getting worse. The sun, sun's going to go Nova if, if they don't do anything about it. Um, and then uh, then there's just you know heroes, them rescuing uh, Dusk and these superheroes being superheroes and – continuing to do what they're supposed to do in the face of all of this uh, adversity. Right. You know, all of this horror that's going on, people acting, like you said, you know, you made a really good point toward the beginning. You know, the sun goes out, something that we're used to just we take for granted every day, the sun's going to come up, and the way psychologically we react to that. And I could imagine that would get violent, you know. Very quickly. You know, if if you're not depressed, there were probably a number of people who are angry, and and that's they they show that really really well throughout this series, and of course in a lot of the crossovers as well, and the superheroes are the ones who have to, you know, they have to keep fighting the good fight despite what's going on, despite the fact that things really do look hopeless as you go into issue three, right. Well, and actually, before we get into issue uh, three, there's just one other thing that I wanted to ask you about. It's on uh, page 13. Okay. Um, it's on uh, – it's at, at uh, the home of uh, Ted Knight, and he's – the generation that he is, of course, he's going to be listening to the radio. So <laughs> that to me makes sense. That I get. But the very top on uh, the first panel, they are – it looks like a radio announcer or something is talking to somebody that he calls Rush. Now, when you hear the word or the name Rush in yeah. relation to radio, you're probably only thinking of one person. And that kind of begs the question, does Ted Knight ris- listen to Rush Limbaugh? I don't – let's see. Hold on. Um, evacuation is like this. Well. I don't – no, yeah, it's it's weird, but I guess I mean it's a it's a timely reference. It still is a timely reference, 
Limbaugh still has a show. Mm-hmm. Um, Limbaugh's still popular. And if you read what he's saying, the, this is a caller. Because mm-hmm. it's not Limbaugh saying it's our access to spacecraft is limited. The religious light would never allow sorcery or a new god. It, it it's I haven't listened to political talk radio in a very long time. It's aggravating. Um, I don't. It, it, yeah, yeah. It's it's just, it's almost as aggravating as sports talk radio. Um, but this totally sounds like it. it and you know, <laughs> liberal or conservative pundits would be on the air. Mm-hmm. Yakking and yakking and yakking and yakking, and it's, we're not through talking about that either, are we? <laughs> yo, oh God, it's you know what it is. It it's a very very quick glimpse into the war room in Doctor Strange Love. Oh, I mean, because yeah, think about it, like the, just the, if you, you know, I don't watch I don't watch cable news because it just annoys the piss out of me, um, and I have better things to do with my time. But good man. Th- you do, don't you get that sense, no matter what the political persuasion of a lot of these talking heads and these pundits are, is that they are essentially – they are going to be the people in the war room in Dr. Strangelove arguing over you know, mine shaft gaps and all these other things while you know, the bomb just drops. You know, um, just, that's the, I mean that's – I mean uh, metaphorically speaking anyway, I just, yeah. I just get this feeling that that's, that's a lot of what, what, you're, what you're seeing here. Um, um, I don't want to get too far. Um, no, I don't want to get too far off topic. Yeah, either. but what I will say, and believe me, because we, we are going to be talking about this, and, and uh, you know, I guess yeah. it will have to be the next segment. But um, we are going to talk about the way that uh, I think political pundits, and I don't care, you know, left, right, you know, center, whatever, libertarian, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, I, I view their job, and this is all I'm going to say about it for the moment. I think they view their job as being professional critics and whiners, mm-hmm. and no matter what the president – insert president here mm-hmm. – no matter what he does, you know, if it's a, a Democrat president, then those on the right are going to – they're going to bash on him. Or if he's a president on um, the right, then the people on the left are going to yeah. bash on him. And that's the way I think that – I truly do believe that's the way that they roll. It doesn't matter what his actual – there's a degree to which it doesn't really matter what his actual policies are. He's got R after his last name, so he is the enemy. Or he's got D after his yeah. last name, so he's the yeah. enemy. And um, that's about maybe the nicest way that I can phrase it. I will say uh, – and this would make Scott and Mike very happy. I like the fact that um, there's the Trilon and the Perisphere on – Ted Knight's radio. Yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's an Easter egg. It's it's you have to you have to look at it to notice it and and, but it's that that was I thought that was really nice. I did. Yes, I, I agree. Now, um, actually, is it okay if I just put you down for just a minute? I, I need to get some milk. Hold on. Go ahead. Actually, I want to take a leak too. So. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oy. Okay, you still with me? Yep. Cool. Alright, I'm going to open up the third issue now. Okay, let me go ahead. I thought I had it out already, but it seems like... It's alright. Okay. And I've got about an hour or so, okay. but I think we'll, we'll be probably done within an hour. Okay, alright, well, um, I'm going to try and power through this then, uh, just try to make the most of your time. Oh, uh, no, it's, it's cool. Um, alright, so, let me just... Uh, I'm, I have to make little notes or else it, it just yeah, becomes no. a huge mess, so... Uh, but, but, okay, so then in three, two, yes. one. <sighs> Anyhow, so I think that's uh, probably a good good little lead-in, I suppose, mm-hmm. for uh, the third issue. Um, and again, this is another uh, – This I would almost want to call this a little bit of a return to form, uh, this cover. Uh, the, second, uh, this, the second issue's cover was apropos of exactly nothing. This cover is a little bit – I don't know. It's it's sort of posterish, but it it nevertheless sells and reinforces the concept. Guys, people are fucking dying, so we need to. It's really dire yeah. for a cover when you look at it. And those are all body bags on the ground. Yes, they are. And um, now some of these, uh, just to tell you how kind of when you really think about it, how dark this cover really is. Some of these uh, body bags, they're recognizably body bags, and so whatever. Some of them are very small. Yes. And um, that's pretty fucking dark for a uh, comic book cover of this time. So, yeah. Um, anyway, getting into the main story proper, though, what we see is uh, Warriors. This is Guy Gardner's, I guess, sort of bar slash restaurant mm-hmm. slash hangout for uh, yeah. uh, the cape set in uh, the DC universe. And again, this was one of those things I didn't actually pay just tons and tons of attention to in um, the uh, – you know, at the time, uh, because yeah. you know, I couldn't afford to collect everything, so I hadn't, I didn't really know too much about warriors. But I love this concept of a sort of superhero hangout. It's sort of like Cheers for superheroes. You know? Yeah, I love it too. I always did. And it's been sort of turned into this sort of impromptu infirmary. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, power goes out, and so we have to rely on the Legion, at least for the moment, to power it. And it's basically – this is the moment in the uh, in the disaster movie where the community has to come together and – whereas before they were may, they may have been a little bit at each other's throats. Now they really are having to pull together and be a real team. Yeah. And in the middle of all of this – and I'm sure there's a story or a crossover or something that's going know. on. I don't know what the fuck this relates to. It doesn't, I honestly don't know. Yeah, it's basically a, it, the demon Etrigan. Yeah. Basically saying, you know, we'll, we'll, I can restore the sun, just sell me your soul, all of you. It has to be universal. And honestly, this is one of those things I, – I don't want to get going too much into my own religious views, but I do tend to believe that things like this really do exist. Mm-hmm. I, I've just seen some very weird, strange, fucked up things in my life too much yeah. to, to make me think that this is all fiction. And – if you believe in the idea of hell or demons or any kind of um, dark forces, dark spiritual forces in the world, to believe in that at all is to basically be on some level or another opposed to them. You don't want to have anything to do with them, and there's really nothing they can offer you that you're going to want to sell your soul for. 
Yeah. And so on the one hand, it kind of feels like they have to at least make the offer. And we all kind of have to say, go fuck yourself. So, and, and it's obviously done for some comedy here. Yes. Because the Daily Planet headline is Earth to Demon, go to hell. Yeah, pretty much. And, yeah. um, you know, you've, you've even – I think this is supposed to be um, – I guess this is a, a Pope John Paul II at the bottom of page yeah. five. Yes. And so – I don't think he would have told anyone, you know, go to hell, but I do think that would have been more or less his added. Actually, you know what? Do you happen to know Latin? No. <laughs> okay. All right. I do well, not. Um, for those of you uh, who maybe know more Latin than uh, Tom and I do, the Daily Planet headline that you, uh, that you can see at uh, the top of uh, page six, right below the headline, uh, Pope says, quantum mutatus abilo. And I friggin' no idea what that is, but I'm pretty sure that's not the Pledge of Allegiance. So, anyway, uh, I guess if you want to go to Google Translate... In fact, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to go to Google Translate right now, and we are going to find out what precisely that means. So, um, let's see. This is... Now, what was it that was quantum mutatus... What was the rest of it? Uh, let's see. Quantum mutatus abilo. Abilo, yes. Uh... That makes no fucking sense. It says much changed from that. Hmm. Well, uh, that's a kind of anticlimactic. All right. Well, get back into the story, though. Um, this is... Uh, it, and you're sure it is... Um, yeah, it, do, it does look like Latin, so it's not Italian or anything. He wasn't even Italian. He was Polish. Right. But uh, the official language of the Vatican, as far as I know, is... Believe Latin. it or not, it's Latin. Like, people say Latin's a dead language. Not so. Not in science, not in religion. (laughs) So uh, from there, uh, we get Lex. This is actually sort of an interesting moment for for Lex in as much as um, I realize that there's a story that's going on here. And so they can't really they can't really get too much into the blood and guts necessarily of everything. But uh, Lex, his solution to this for the sun being permanently out. Oh, we'll we'll, we'll just use alternative energy. Now, uh, now, uh, what else is on the agenda? And, like, that's the fucking agenda. I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of, right now, that's the knot that everybody's trying to, un- to untie. And uh, you just kind of pulled it out of nowhere. I'd like to get a little bit more detail on that, if we could. And, um, anyway, it's, like I say, I mean, there are other things that we've got to work through in this story, and so that's fine. But, what the fuck, you know? So Yeah, I know. Um, the image of the life force of the planet, this is nothing new. To DC, in fact, um, it might go back before Ostrander's Firestorm, but there was a four-part storyline in the tail end of his run on Firestorm when Firestorm became the elemental character called the Elemental War, and Firestorm was fire, uh, Red Tornado was wind, there was a character called Nyad, who was water, and I believe Swamp Thing uh, made an actual appearance in the mainstream DCU and was Earth. And uh, this is essentially the representation of, of Gaia, Gaia, the Earth spirit. So K- Kessel is Kiesel is reaching really far back. Yes, um, and, and grabbing that, which uh, which I appreciated having been a fan of DC. I'm sure Shag can 
elaborate way more on that. But well, that's the thing. Shag can school all of us, so <laughs> yeah. let's not give Shag more credit than we have to. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, anyway, so from there uh, we move on. We move back to uh, the Starman Observatory, um, mm-hmm. and you've got Ted basically asking the question, the scientific question. Hey, has anyone checked the sun's diameter lately? And that's uh, that's when we find out, you know, like the story really is turning. I mean, at this point, it doesn't matter if the sun gets – well, actually, it, the sun's not going to get extinguished. What's going to happen is it's uh, it's going to explode real good. And so it doesn't matter what alternative energy or whatever Lex uh, cooks up. Mankind is fucked at this point. So yeah. um, there's really no working around this until such time as they realize, hey, there is a way to uh, – of working around this. And they basically devise a sort of a, a, a suicide mission. And at this point, it's really a matter of who's going to draw the, str- uh, the short straw and uh, make the trip. As all that's going on, though, you've got Dusk, who's basically decided, you know what, it's time to head for the high and lonesome. Uh, yeah. did, did what I could. It's time to move on to whatever you know the next planet's going to be, and maybe I can do better next time. So... And then the Phantom Stranger shows up and plays Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. Pretty much. And, and uh, uh, it's probably one of the weaker moments of the entire thing. Yeah, and I was actually going to ask you about this. You know, is this the moment where we start getting a little bit of story padding here? Or I want to say yeah, because knowing the ending of the story, she doesn't necessarily have a role to play. She played the role in the beginning, but she – it's not like she's the one – this isn't Han Solo collecting his money and taking off and then coming back and realizing, you know, then coming back at the end and, you know, you're, it's all clear, kid, let's blow this thing and go home. She doesn't – I don't really think she does anything from this point on. You know, Hal's the one who saves the world. Yeah. The only, so, the only justification I could think of for this – and if you think I'm wrong, you know, feel free, but – She'd gotten attacked and then dragged around earlier yeah. in the story. And so she had her reasons to have a less than savory impression of the human race. Yes. And this part of the story was basically designed to not give her a stake in the human race so much as to show, number one, she did the right thing by warning us. And number two, we're not all bad. We're not all good, God knows, but we're, we're not all bad. And – Oddly enough, one of the best examples actually is um, Zatanna and Fire mm-hmm. um, kickstarting the Ray. And yeah. Z- with uh, Zatanna is the ultimate showman. I mean, everything with her has got to be theatrical. And so it's not enough that uh, Zatanna uh, has figured out a way for the Ray, or sorry, for Fire to re-energize the Ray. Mm-hmm. She has to basically do it in the most provocative theatrical way possible where she assumes her flame form and she kisses him as opposed to maybe there's got to be some other way that doesn't require her A, to kiss him, B, to go into uh, flame on mode, right? But she's – this is still spectacle in Zatanna's mind and it just – again, you don't have this Chris Nolan scene where it's 15 fucking pages of her saying – the the only way I know how to live life is to make everything a show. All life's a play, blah, blah, blah. You know, she doesn't fucking do that. You just see her make life into a play. And it just it, – it works for me. You know, you, we're seeing rather than being told. And that 
it works for me. So, anywho. Yeah. Um, and and this, I I can't quite shake you know whatever character value there is in all of this. I can't quite shake the impression though that this truly is character padding. We do get to check in on a shitload of other characters, and it just kind of it all feels a little bit unnecessary until we get to Alan Scott's sort of moment with uh, Jade and Obsidian. Yeah. And then he says. Uh, we're going to do one last sweep of the area, and then we'll go home. And Dusk even goes so far as to ask, the fuck good is going home even going to do anymore? You know, and the issue here is that, you know, they've all done what they can. You know, there comes a point when, and again, I mean, look, if this is not the way that all of you view life, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But if it was me, I would want to have a little bit of time so I can get comfortable and meet my maker. You know, I can make peace with that idea, and I can't. And if if nothing else, uh, spend time with my family, say goodbye, you know, and or, or whatever it is that we're gonna do. And it's not so much about you know going home and tr- retreating to safety. It's basically saying you know what we've done all we can at the at, you know at this point, things are gonna work out the way that they're gonna work out, and yeah. there's just not much left. And I don't know why, but that one panel of the three of them flying off. There's just there's a fucking honesty to that that yes I don't know anyway so sometimes you know like visuals are always more powerful than words yes and you you can't always put it you can't always verbalize a sensation but there's something to this it's just it's amazing yeah and and then it gets that point gets reinforced when Clark goes to uh, Smallville mm-hmm. toward the end and and. Um, but at the same time with Clark, it's he's going – he is basically saying goodbye because it's like, you know, I'm – he's the one who says I'm the one who's going to get in the ship and go on the suicide mission. With with Alan, it's like, you know, if we have to face this, we face this together as a family. And I think there is – I think you're right. There's something very um, – there's something very honest and there's something very powerful about that because in the face of – when a disaster occurs and it may or may not affect somebody in your family, the first person you call is that or the first person you try to find is a family member or someone you love. Typically, yes. Yeah. So um, I think I totally agree with you. I think I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and it, it is kind of interesting that there's this moment, like you were saying, where Superman goes to uh, Smallville. Mm-hmm. And he kind of tells different stories to his parents. Martha pretty much gets both barrels. She doesn't, you know, th- there's really no sugarcoating going on there. Jonathan, uh, what he, you know, all he's really willing to say to his father is, you're not going to have to worry about it too much longer, Pop. And then that's, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. He's not, at least what I'm reading from this, I mean, the art is, I'm not saying this to be critical, but it is sort of, it's not necessarily clear that this is drawn the way Kiesel intended it to be, but whatever. Yeah. The point is, um, you know, this is really what everyone's doing. And again, it's just, I find this is, this is a very easy moment to believe in and relate to, you know? Yeah. After that, you get into a little bit of, um, continuity mechanics. This is the final page of the third issue. Yeah. Where you've got spark just sort of, which is to say lightning lass. Um, Mm -hmm chilling out with a uh, guy Gardner at a uh, warriors and she actually raises the 
I don't know if this is the first time that someone's uh, actually ra- like played the continuity card here, but she actually raises the suggestion this can't this can't happen because if it, yeah. if it could happen, then how do I have a future to be born in? And actually, I think it's in a different section of the story, but they actually do tackle that. They say, you know what, guys, continuity is a malleable thing. It mm-hmm. can change. These people know that there was a different legion of superheroes to begin with, and this was not that legion. And so who's to say what future they're coming from? And it's one of those things that, if you don't think about it uh, too much, it makes sense. But it's that fuzzy, nonsensical, uh, uh, sensible uh, comic book, space-time sort of science. that Because because comic books. Yeah, there you go. And... uh, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And then we get what might have been a uh, <laughs> might have been a little bit of a uh, cliffhanger mm-hmm. had it not been for you know because there's this weird random green light that appears out of nowhere and the natural question you ask is what the fuck is the cause of that? And then it says to be continued in Parallax Emerald Knight number one and like oh Hal Hal's back. Yeah, they would have it would have done better. Uh, this would have been better if the last page had been a splash of there's Hal. And then we have Parallax Emerald Knight to give us a little bit of backstory of like, cause we have not seen Hal Jordan at all through this. So this isn't, um, it makes total sense that he makes the big heroic sacrifice in the end because he was once a hero and Parallax Emerald Knight, um, gets us to that point it gets us through his rationalization his thinking about it kyle's pleas for him and everything like that and it gets us to this scene with guy gardner uh but uh, yeah it would it it would have served the story so much better with um because the the emerald knight storyline just that kind of spoils the cliffhanger yeah and so they, I, you're right they really should have gone for the full reveal or else titled the thing emerald knight number one and let you Fill in the blanks for yourself. Who is that a reference to? But yeah, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Um, either way you look at it, that pretty much leads into final night number four. Yeah, and it's it's basically this is really the the hero's push uh, into the basically they at this point they've got their plan. They know more or less what they want to do. Now they have to put their plan. In, into effect and of course it, it because it's a story it cannot be that easy there have got to yeah. be complications and things getting in the way things breaking or going wrong people going missing and so there's a sort of obligatory factor to it but it doesn't really feel it doesn't feel as as fake as it does sometimes like in an action movie when they're ramping up action and stuff is going wrong because hey we still have another 15 minutes of the movie we need to make it through Oh, yeah, Armageddon. Yeah, there you go. Armageddon is exactly like that. It's like, oh, what else could go wrong, you know? Yeah. So yeah. that 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 works for me. Um, the other thing, though, that, that actually sort of plays in all of this is I, I wouldn't go so far as to say Superman's insecurity and his lack of powers, but I do think you can't completely isolate the fact that Superman's powers are pretty much kaput. Yeah, with his nonstop volunteering to be the one who pilots the ship, let's face it, into death. 
yeah. whoever makes this trip is this is a one-way trip. Yeah, Sorry. so apparently your computer agrees with me. Yeah. Oh no, so. no, no, no. I uh you looked up Google. I texted Stella. Oh. Stella's a Latin teacher. Oh. He's quoting the Aeneid. How much change from that one slash him? It's a weird quote for the Pope to use. I'm not sure how it relates. Okay, I'm not really sure either, but yeah. hey, fuck it. We'll, we'll so, ride with sorry, it. Sorry for my phone going off in the middle of class. Hey, no problem. And thank you, Stella. I, I don't think she <laughs> listens, but thank you, Stella. Appreciate you uh, helping us with our Latin here. So, um, so there is a little bit of a reversal, though. Uh, you know, the sun or sorry, the ship uh, takes off into the yeah. sun and we're expecting it to be Superman, but come to find out it's Pharaoh. Yeah. And then there's yet another reversal on top of that. And that is really the if you ask me kind of the franchise of what people really remember Final Night for. Mm-hmm. There's this back and forth when uh, Hal Jordan shows up that Batman does not trust Hal, you know, oh, yeah. because his his reasons for doing this are putting right what once went wrong which was sort of the entire dramatic thrust of zero hour you know that was what the entire conflict revolved around and so naturally batman wouldn't trust him i think under the circumstances though batman's the ultimate pragmatist whatever bullshit happened in the past happened in the past right now the world literally is at stake. So we can put our bullshit aside long enough for Hal to do whatever it is that he needs to do. After which we can get back uh, to, you know, our, what has become our status quo. This does kind of raise the scene, though. It does actually sort of raise a, sort, uh, a couple of interesting questions in terms of continuity. Is Hal Jordan's secret identity public knowledge at this point? To the world? I don't think so. All right. Well, it's just they keep calling him Hal right there in front of Lex Luthor. And Lex... Oh, that's a good point. Lex is not an... He's not an idiot, you know? Yeah. I think he'd figure out, based on just having a first name, who this guy is. I mean, he used to hang out in Coast City. Yeah. Uh, his first name's Hal. Uh, how hard can it really be to... I don't know. Anyway. So it just it made me. It's not worth. It's not worth uh, overanalyzing, I guess. But no. there are some other things though that um, that are issues here in all of this that we need to be aware of. Something has got to happen in order to protect Earth's ecology because when you think about it, we live in a very, very fragile uh, yes. e- uh, ecosystem. Yes. And so. Basically, if our atmosphere is a little bit thicker or a little bit thinner, entire entire species of plants go extinct. Mm-hmm. Or if the sun gets too bright or if it gets too dim, entire animal species are going extinct, including mm-hmm. probably uh, mankind. <coughs> and yes. so you need something that – now that we're pretty much getting to the end of this, um, of this uh, disaster – we need to find a way to put everything back to normal once we get to the other side of things. Putting the sun, like reigniting the sun, that's not going to do it. That by itself is not enough anymore. After 24 hours, it might have been. It, that's not going to. It's been what, like a week or something like that. Yeah. That's not enough anymore. It. We need to, just you know, the flooding that's going to take place. The you know all of the, uh, 
uh, dead wildlife. I mean, there's got to be some sort of protection here that puts things as much back to normal as we can. And they have to find a way to have real ramifications to this story while still having a DC universe to show for it next month. And so they find a nice little balance where Hal protects the Earth, not necessarily people on it. And that gives this story stakes for the characters, but it also gives them a universe to inhabit next month. So it's a good little compromise under the circumstances. And he also also, uh, manages to avoid the trope of the dumber um, disaster movies where they don't take that particular aspect of science into account. You know that there are ramifications of whatever you're doing to stop the natural disaster, and they there might be side effects. Mm-hmm. And he even says, you know, he even says it on page eleven that you know he has the power to fix it. And one of the things that Kyle was complaining about in the Emerald Knight special was that he's got the most powerful weapon in the universe, and he has no idea what to do. And Hal is a at this point, having absorbed the central battery mm-hmm. is a, the personification of that, you know, he's a living power battery essentially. So he is living embodiment of that most powerful weapon in the universe. All that Jeff Johns parallax fear demon bullshit aside. Yeah. So he had, and he knows how to control it. So he is like, you know, I can do this in a way that is going to bring everything back the way it should. And that's his, you're right, that's a sacrifice. He's saving the planet. He's not saving these people. Right. It's in the, It's just it's one of those things where you kind of have to make that little nuance there or else you're wondering, yeah. well, if you're going to go this far, why not bring, all, bring back all the people that died? Well, there may be a future story in there somewhere, so we get, we, that has to stay on the table. But, hey, people got to eat. So um, really it's as simple as that. So. And he knows he's going to die too. So, yeah, you don't necessarily get that impression, though, on these pages. It's only later on that I I, I guess I, I see. And that's the thing. I only really caught that on the reread. Right. Because it's in it's in the special. And maybe um, that's where I read it. Though. It's the, you know, in the interest of time, what he does in the special is he goes and sees Carol, Tom Kalmaku. Um, a couple other people, he's seen John Stewart, he visits Ollie's grave and then he goes off to help the heroes. It is mirrors the last half of Green Lantern number 180 and 181 from 1983 mm-hmm. where he goes to see, he actually goes to see everybody but Tom Kalamaka, which pisses off Tom. But, um, and Carol, he doesn't really, and he doesn't really see Carol because Carol's the one who who yells at him because, you know, things are ruined or he goes to see Barry. He goes to see Clark. He goes to see all these people. And then he goes to O and he quits. Mm. So what Kiesel did here was, was mirror that Mm. because right after that, he goes to the heroes, he goes to the sun and he dies. Well, I must say that I, that part actually, I, I I didn't, I didn't. That's me again. (laughs) Reference me being the kind of, that's the dorky reference that if you were, you know, but you don't need need to know that, you know, to see. But if you, you know, like I said, yeah. And there's this other moment on uh, page twelve where basically uh, Hal says, "Hey guys, don't worry about it. I got this shit yeah. it's all under control. I'm gonna heal the planet on my oath." Mm-hmm. And everybody's looking around, 
just kind of there's this kind of pregnant pause in the air. And yeah. the only one that it doesn't really make sense for is uh, Cosmic Boy and Saturn Girl. What could they really know? I mean, if their records yeah, suck exactly. as bad as they say, but hey, whatever, comic. Yeah. So uh, then from there, uh, we we uh, catch up with uh, Pharaoh on uh, his little kamikaze suicide mission here. Mm-hmm. Hal saves him. And again, it's another little just neat line from – he's got amaz- some really kind of snappy dialogue here. Yeah. But uh, he says, nope, can't have that, son. I know how important rings can be. Yeah. And yeah, I, of all people, yeah, he would. So – um, the artwork in this whole, the artwork of the whole series is great, but the artwork in the back half of this issue is just phenomenal. It is, and it really gets it all across so well. And you know, the thing is, like, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not a writer. I'm certainly not an artist, but it, it just kind of feels like if I had, if I had been drawing this, my, just subconsciously, I would have wanted to draw Hal as being a little. Evil looking here, but he's not. He's actually he he looks actually rather heroic, and mm-hmm. um, you know he's I don't know. It's just it's incredibly effective, incredibly powerful. And the moment though that you know I guess I where I really understood. This is one of those times where best way to put it, there are times when you know you struggle to identify what exactly a character is like who are they and i don't mean like what's their name i mean like what are what what is this person right yeah and for the longest time especially after zero hour i just did not get hal jordan did not understand but the parallax uh, angle actually does this is the first and maybe only time that it that i really bought it and that hal really does see the himself and his actions that he's doing the right thing and he kind of proves that by reciting the the green lantern oath Mm -hmm. which he's already got the power he doesn't need the oath but this oath is already so embedded in his soul that no matter how the guardians fucked him over this is still a very central pillar of his identity and so him reciting it um to 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 save everybody this is – it's basically him reclaiming or maybe just reaffirming that part of himself. Yes. And I don't know. It's really powerful. And I, I'm not going to lie to you, dude. I got goosebumps when I was reading this. It's, uh, it's so great. It, it, he, he's rediscovering the heroic aspect of himself. It's, yeah, it's the – you know um, – He's going. He he is making sure that he he's go. He goes out on his own terms, but he goes out, letting the audience know that he went out in a way that was, um, heroic. And and it doing this makes it so much more powerful. And it does kind of complete that. Um, everybody always wanted to draw a a. a God, we we've got to hurry. Everybody always wanted to draw that uh, that a uh, com- that comparison between Green Lanterns and Jedi. And obviously you've got Hal Jordan, who's Anakin. And now mm-hmm. you've got – this is the return of the Jedi moment where he, he sacrifices himself yeah. for a higher a higher good. And so – Yeah, yeah. He throws the – he's throwing the Emperor down the elevator shaft, the, the, the shaft, the Death Star. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, Sun comes back to life and – Oh, yeah. We're – Yeah, we're and okay. then – yeah, things start start really getting back to normal. 
there's this little bit of a uh, showdown, not a showdown, but uh, it's it, it, it's more than just a conversation. These guys have a complicated relationship. It's a, a little bit tense between Superman and Batman. Superman basically sees the good in what Hal did, and that whatever his purposes were for doing it, he still did it. And that counts for a lot. And in Batman's book, at least as it's presented in this story, the man's still a murderer. There's no two ways mm-hmm. about it. And I don't I don't think that Batman would necessarily be that cold about it. If anything, I think it's Superman who'd be the one dealing in moral absolutes. Batman, I think would I think his attitude about it would be more along the lines of, well, you know, yeah, the guy wasn't perfect. No one's saying that he was, but he did the right thing when it counted and Clark, there's something to be said for that, you know? And I, it's just of all, of all people, this is, I mean, far be it from me to, to disagree too much with uh, Carl Kiesel when it comes to characterization. Yeah. This is just one of those times I, I actually think that the characters are actually looking at this in reverse of what they should be. That's a good point. It's cause we are a little bit of a ways off from that sort of, that sort of Batman being in the comics all the time of the, he needed to be brought to justice for his crimes and he never was, or some, you know, mm. bullshit that, that line that he would have been, that he would have been given later on down the road. But yeah, I always thought that Superman was the one who was more black and white in his thinking in that regard. And, and Batman always did see the sort of, a little bit more of the gray area in there. I agree. But. Either way, the um, the uh, series ends much as it began with the sun shining brightly over over the city of Metropolis. And this was I, I remember just reading this. Um, it, it was a couple of days ago. I was at my I was on my last break when I was at work, and I was just sitting there vaping like a motherfucker and. Mm-hmm. Got to the end, and the thing is, the end, like the—I don't mean the end, but I mean like the final page. Yeah. Always sneaks up on me that. I guess I'm always expecting, on some level, like another two or three pages worth of story, and then we get the wrap up. And mm-hmm. here, it just—you have that, uh, you know, Superman and Batman kind of have their little, their moment together, yeah. and then that's—that's that's it, and it ends, with uh, the beginnings of the. Uh, the uh, Green Lantern Oath. And I don't know. It's just really enjoy this story. It's – of all the crossovers that DC's ever done, I'd, I'd go so far as to say this is undoubtedly in the top the top ten, maybe the top five, yeah. top ten for sure. And ultimately, it's a tale – like it, it's kind of funny that in Zero Hour, Hal was sort of – it was the reveal that he was actually the big bad. Yeah. Here it's a reveal that he's the the true hero of it, and I kind of like the reversal of all of that. That, that. that I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, I do too, and I I like the fact that they didn't try to make this more than it needed to be. You know, mm. it's it's the it's people saving the world, people saving other people's lives, and it's just it's uh it's a. With the exception of a, where we m- mentioned that there's you know a little bit of padding, it's not. It's very very tight, mm-hmm. and uh, you know and and it it like it knows exactly what it is, and and does not try to be more than that. And uh, and and kudos to Kiesel and 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 Eminem for uh, 
for putting something together like that because it was a it's it's become a rarity in comics that you have something that is just you know that's like you know this this event doesn't have to have you know an enormous number of ramifications down the road i i agree anyway and um now as it goes for the uh tie-ins the three that uh tom picked out and those are really the the main three that i really want to talk about anyway Mm -hmm. the three that tom picked out the first one this is detective comics number 703 by chuck dixon written or written by chuck dixon drawn uh, that is penciled by Graham Nolan, Nolan and inked by Scott Hanna. Now, I, I don't think you could have possibly known this, but this is one of my favorite Batman creative teams of all time. I mean, the, again, speaking of top five, they're in yeah. the top five. Well, you were um, a few uh, a little while ago. I was listening to you talk about um, uh, the Alan Grant, Norm Brayfogle Batman. Mm hmm. Which and you and I came in on Batman right around the same time. My first Batman comic was Detective Six Seventeen. Oh which shit! I think is, yeah, seriously, like it was Six Seventeen Batman Four Fifty because it was the return of the Joker. Now I had that was the first one I bought. The first ones I'd read were a friend loaned me Death of the Fa- Death in the Family and A Lonely Place of Dying, but the first one I remember buying was Detective Six Seventeen. So basically, I'm one month ahead of you in Jeez. terms of when I start Batman. And it was Wolfman and Aparo mm-hmm. and Grant and Brayfogle. And the the Aparo art reminded me of of Garcia Lopez and, and what I've been seeing on the side of, you know, it looked like cartoon Batman, like what I've been seeing on the side of Lunchboxes and stuff. But the, the Brayfogle art was something I was, was drawn to. Yeah. And that's one of my top teams. And then they didn't have – they had a decent-sized run, but – uh, I was introduced to Chuck Dixon on the first Robin miniseries, and yeah, it's never looked the, back. Yeah. Oh man, Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan on Detective Comics is one of the quintessential Batman teams. It's just, it's so good. Especially in this era when uh, mm-hmm. you know it's post Night, everything basically post yeah. Jean Paul Valley, and you know yeah. they were just telling these not so much in this issue, but they were just telling these kind of rich interesting crime stories yes and the i don't know it's just the art the writing i mean it, it literally would not change a thing the, uh, the even the inking and i'm not the world like uh, like i said i mean i'm not an artist so i don't always no. necessarily appreciate a good ink job but i've seen graham nolan inked by other people and no one does the job the way scott Hanna does yeah so and credit to to adrian roy who I believe was oh no, Gloria Vasquez and, and Android Imagers. The coloring had gotten started to get better. Yes, uh, not the coloring in terms of the ability of the colors, the the techniques and the technology for coloring was getting better at this point. So the coloring has become richer over the course of the last even five years. Um, you know. From from the, you look at something like this, and then you look at something from five years earlier, and the coloring is a lot different. And the coloring five years ago was still really really good, but yeah, they they're just the coloring does really sets the mood, and it's just this nice crime story uh, set against the context of this um, radio talk. This guy Hank, this radio talk show host who looks a lot like Larry King, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and. 
this kind of like, you know, Robin and the Huntress mm-hmm. are the kind of light in what has become a literally very dark world. And this is one of the things about the Batman titles that I li- that I really appreciated at the time that you could have characters having these sort of superficially they're very similar to one another but they're still having these sort of ethical sort of jousts with yeah. one another and on paper there's really not that much of a difference between a huntress versus a batman mm-hmm. until you start actually looking at what what does the huntress do that the batman doesn't yeah. and then you start appreciating that no there are differences you know and it, one is not necessarily as good as another and Bruce is actually very much within his rights to want to keep the Huntress on a short leash. It's fine to use her for things like legacy and whatnot when you need all the warm bodies you can get. Yeah. But push comes to shove, they are not the same. And and I don't even mean that in that cliche, I'm nothing like you kind of way, because, God, if there's one thing, I'm sick of hearing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, anyway. I, so I, I see a lot of the Punisher and the Huntress in a way. Well, and I think that, you know, somebody who's grown up the way that the Huntress has, this yeah. is a very honest thing for – these are very honest opinions – well, not opinions, actions for her to take. Yeah. And not in any way morally right, but it, it, they're nevertheless honest for the character, and it it adds up. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the, the whole point of the story is the sort of um, dramatic contrast between – Fuck it. Let's say uh, that he is Larry King on the radio. Yeah. Uh, this more of like, actually, more of like a scum, like Larry King as a scumbag radio guy. Yeah, he just he's drawn to look like Larry King. But if Larry King was a was a real slime ball, yeah, local radio host. Exactly that, and he's basically doing nothing but talking down to the audience, talking them down, really. Um. And just destroying whatever optimism that they might want to find, you know, any kind of comfort. I mean, seriously, dude, what the fuck is the harm in saying everything's going to be better tomorrow? You know, you can't even you can't even tell people that that you know things are going to get better. You're gonna you got to be that big a prick. But um, this is set against you know obviously the haves or the rich, the one yeah. whatever you want to call them. Not giving a flying shit about anybody while Batman's out there kicking ass and taking names. Yeah. And the idea is this guy's not telling the truth. He's obviously completely full of shit. And um, it, it just – anyway, so obviously you know that the story's probably going to end with this guy facing some sort of mortal peril or mm-hmm. and then being rescued or being in some other way proved wrong. It is, it is right out of a and, – and I say this – as a compliment, it's right out of like a cop show. Yeah. Or it's 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 a TV plot, and and it works. You know. Um, yeah. There's this moment in here that I was uh, that I was going to ask you about because I, I'm sure there's a context for this that I I just am not familiar with, offhand. Um, Blackgate Prison, where the Riddler is getting assaulted. By one of the other inmates, and then come to find out he paid the inmate to fuck him up like this. Uh huh. What the fuck was that about? I don't know. That might tie into something. There is a Riddler story at some point in this run, 
So that might just be setting. I think it comes after this. Fair enough. Maybe it might. Yeah, it just might be seeding something for the future. All right. Fair enough. <sighs> that makes sense. So anyway, the end ends happily with uh, Batman rescuing the uh, scumbag radio guy. Yeah. Uh, who, in case I in case I wasn't clear, I wasn't criticizing Larry King. I actually called this guy Larry King, but no, he's he's like the scumbag who yeah. looks a bit like Larry King. But anyway, he, just, he's balding. He has glasses and he wears suspenders. He it's yeah. very obvious that yes. he's drawn to look like Larry King. Yes. Well, you know, I just I don't. But really it's want not to, it's not supposed to be Larry King. It's just I think it's just he's just having a little fun with it. Fair enough. I just don't want anyone to think that's who I'm. No, no, no. no. Him, I, th- so. I think Graham Nolan's just having a little fun with it. I tend to agree. So. Anyway, now, um, this is a little bit of a lightning round here, but um, now, did you have anything? I'm not trying to rush you, but I don't, but I don't want to keep you any longer than, than is no, necessary. Cool. Did you have anything else for this? Not for this one, no. Cool. All right, next, uh, shifting gears a bit, this is uh, Legion of Superheroes. I'm saving the other one for last. Okay. This is Legion of Superheroes number 86. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's basically just sort of a it, – it's – I guess a part of this story from the Legion's standpoint and basically the way that they're reacting as much as anything, not just to the disaster that's going on right now, specifically to living conditions of the 20th century, some of which they knew about or could have guessed others. They had no idea, you know, things like air quality, homelessness, You know things like, or it's not just a, a joke about what how shitty our technology is as compared to theirs. Yeah, they're coming from a completely different, I would say, social context. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and and it just it serves to flesh out them, and it serves to flesh out Pharaoh Lad, um, in a way that supplements the main story, and that's why I grabbed it. Uh, it's not vital, much like the Parallax special. Not vital. But um, it's it it just it's a nice little add-on. I agree. Now there is a sort of weird moment where I don't. It, there's something about Lex that just creeps Saturn Girl the hell out, and so she just theatrically rushes out of the rushes out of the room. Yeah. And it's just the expression, like what Lex is saying, really isn't all that all that weird. It's just kind of conversation. It, yeah, is something bothering you here? But his facial expression is like this kind of pervy. I mean, when you think about the fact that he's talking to a 16-year-old girl and he's got to be somewhere in his 30s, um, a 30-year-old person has no has no business smiling at a uh, at a teenager at a teenage girl like this. And so you almost get the idea that, like, he's creeping her out or something like that. Yeah. But just like, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> I mean, like, that's really not who Lex is. I mean, the guy's no. – the guy's – he's got his issues, but I, he never struck me as a lurk. I, I don't know what the hell's going on here. It's slightly, it's slightly out of character, and maybe the intention was just for her to realize that Lex Luthor is, is still a bad guy despite the fact that he's helping them. But it's just not done in a way that's very, very well done. Well, and actually, you know what? As I read all of this, I can't help but think maybe the real agenda here is just to give Rock and Emra basically uh, in this issue the first 
their first moment alone mm-hmm. that uh, obviously is building towards their first kiss. And yeah. the Legion, I'm, as I've always thought of it, I mean, Emra's pretty much Garth's girlfriend. Yeah. And so for her to, you know, uh, pick up, you know, start something with Rock. I see, and that's the thing. I mean, that that speaks to you know my level of ignorance about the post zero hour legion. I don't know if this was like a thing, like did this yeah, rise? I, was this permanent or was this? I don't think of, I read that far. So. Oh, all right. But yeah, I don't. I don't know how far I read into that legion, honestly. So I'd, I'd have to look it up. Um, it does. This does actually play into you know what I've. What I've always kind of liked about the Legion, and that's, I guess, like the soap opera quality to it. Like, mm-hmm. first off, this is just a really cool uh, panel on page 14 where they're actually kissing in midair and everything. Yeah. And, at the and you know, on the one hand, that should be cool all by itself. But every member of the team has their own reaction, you know. Uh, Joe is, uh, he, he was caught by surprise. He's probably the only one uh, involved in the story or reading it who didn't see this coming. Uh, Phantom Girl is just happy. Brainiac 5 is sarcastic. Um, and then you get to... Uh, God, what is this chick's name? Uh, Spark? What's her name? Um, well, fuck it. Spark. Yeah. Um, she has this... She's just a little bit jealous, shall we mm-hmm. say. And uh, being as it's the Legion, you can kind of... It's, it's sort of open for debate... Who is she jealous of? So, I don't know. Yeah. Um, maybe enough said there. <laughs> Pretty much. And anyway, I mean, it's just, it's, to me, like, the, the post-Zero Hour Legion just doesn't really get a whole lot of love, if you ask me. But this is one of those issues that show you just how cool the post-Zero Hour Legion really is yeah i i was reading it for a while i think i might have stopped reading it out of financial necessity more than anything else to be honest with you but um they 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 rebooted it it was pretty well done at least at at first um i just i think it just kind of gets shoved onto the pile of things that are not necessarily derided maybe they're just kind of ignored or some somebody has a hard-on for the classic characters and wants to bring those back well, and Which kind of happened. Yeah, no, be that as it may, I just I at least wanted to throw that out there and yeah. see what comes back to me. Mark Wade, one of the uh, creative architects of the post Zero mm-hmm. Hour Legion, he doesn't have as many positive things to say about it. Oddly enough, hmm. he kind of regards it as professional fan fiction, and he was the one writing it. So, huh? Yeah, weird. Um, again, not trying to rush you, but do you have anything no. else for this? Uh, no, no, no. That's it. All right, cool. Then uh, last, but God knows not least, uh, this is Robin, number 35. The reason I say this for last is going to become apparent in just a moment. But one of the things that really works for me about this story is the fact that it was drawn by Staz Johnson. Yeah. Who, he did a lot of fill-ins on Batman titles around this time. So if somebody was, you know, late on a deadline or something like that, hey, let's call Staz. First Mm -hmm. off, Staz. That's just a fucking cool name. (laughs) Staz. I shouldn't need to say anything more than that. Fucking guy's name is Stas. But this is more of, speaking of sort of soap opera, this is um, Tim and and Steph not so much uh, laying their foundation, because it had been pretty solidly laid yeah. long before this. But yeah. this was just sort of reinforcing it. And 
she wasn't she wasn't quite on the same terms with Batman as say the Huntress, but she was still very much on probation. You know what she was doing. You could think of it as yeah. being she was almost unlicensed. Yeah, because they kept telling her to quit. Yeah, and really, considering how things played out for her later on, were they really wrong to say that? Yeah, that's so. true. I mean, but yeah, there was this sense of in the early days of the spoiler it was like, "Go home, Stephanie. Go home, Stephanie. Go home, Stephanie." They were very, very dismissive of her. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, one of the things I've always kind of liked about Stephanie as a character is really her reasons for doing what she's doing. Mm-hmm. That you know, her. her father has has caused so much trouble she wants to try and find a way to make up for it yeah and honestly in a world where people put on capes and go jumping around all the time just as a matter of course that motivation's as good as anything better than most so um and of course they end up uh in this sort of i don't even know what you call it this sort of um cavern this Mm -hmm. ice cavern uh uh, frozen inside of this uh, this warehouse where House. Yeah. they pretty much have to make the choice of uh, saving somebody who, let's face it, really isn't worth saving. Yeah. But this is – there's really no option of, of leaving this guy just to freeze to death. And, of course, that ends up paying off because they do find real victims who had been trapped in there. So that alone makes it worth it. Yeah. And and it's the lesson that Tim gets to teach her about, you know, a life is a life, especially in a situation like this. And, you know, we don't necessarily leave our victims to die, which separates him from Jason, who had done that right before the death in the family storyline. So, yes, he did. Yeah. May have so. even caused it. It's up for debate. Yeah, it's, it's a gray area. I like the fact that um, – Tim is quick thinking enough with a battering to hold it up to the chainsaw and uh, it the the metal clash with the metal and throws the chain off the chainsaw and it's and the guy catches some of the links of the chain in the face. It's just um, that was a really, really it's a really, really well, well done scene. And especially like the way he reacts. I mean, you yeah. know, that guy has cut himself worse than that shaving. Yeah. But here he is. He's losing his shit over it. And it's like, dude, shut the fuck up. You know? He says it's only a scratch, nothing compared to what you had planned for me. And he starts punching him. Yeah. And in the middle of all of that, we get the uh, toy man who's escaping from what looks like Blackgate Prison. Yeah. And I realize I'm probably going to alienate at least a few people when I say this. Honestly, I'm a I'm a toy man fan. I loves hmm. me some toy man. I don't care if it's uh, pre-crisis. I don't care if it's burn age. I don't care if it's animated series, Smallville, whatever. It's all good to me. This, though, is the this is like the Norman Bates toy man. This is <laughs> the only toy man that I'm sorry I yeah. I refuse to accept. This guy, no, yeah. no, 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 uh, no. I just I cannot abide this this version of toy man. He's he's creepy for all the wrong reasons. He is. He is. It's just. Anyway, I, and honestly, I have no idea what subplot came out of this. It's it's a it is a Marv Wolfman, Chris Claremont classic. Set something up for a few issues down the road by just having this this interlude in the middle of the story that, in this case, it ties into the story because of the convenience of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But you know, 
three, four, five issues down the line. Hey, remember that moment a few issues ago when the Toy Man broke out of Blackgate or Arkham or wherever the heck he was? This is where it pays off. Yeah. And Claremont and Wolfman both did that all the time. Sometimes Claremont wouldn't pay it off for 10 years, but that's a totally different conversation. <laughs> so, yes, it, and this ends with the sun coming out and, and, and the hope of, of a new day. And, and I kind of liked, I'm glad you picked this as the last crossover. Cause this was, this came out right around the same time, or this was meant to be read around the same time as the fourth issue. Right. And that's actually why I saved it. Yeah. So, now, but, the, um, I don't know, just all around, uh, this these are just some of the some of the better crossovers. This whole mm-hmm. series is chock full of good crossovers. Yeah, yeah. There's a Superman Shazam team up that was pretty good. Oh yeah. Um. There there are a few others. I'm trying to. I'm I'm starting to blank now. But there there were a few others that that I remember were enjoyable. A number of them are available digitally. A number of them are not. It depends on what DC has decided to put up on Comicsology. Yeah. Um, what I remember about uh, uh, the Superboy title about this time, honestly, I don't really care about this version of Superboy apart from Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet. Yeah, I wasn't uh, reading either. And I think by this point he he was being written by – I think it might have been Ron Mars by this point. But mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was, it's just – it's like their objective was to mature him. And to me, uh, maturing this version of Superboy is almost missing the point. And so, I don't know. It, it. I've I've never been overly fond of it, but whatever. Your yeah. actually, your your mileage may vary. <laughs> Probably. Um, I might have not even picked up that issue when it came out. Yeah. And uh, there, there are just there. There's some other ones uh, mm-hmm. too, I, that I really enjoy. And so I don't know. Maybe some future episode we can get into those. But yeah. Uh, right now, just want to thank you, uh, really, for uh, taking the time to. To join me now before we say goodbyes uh would you mind just uh, telling everyone where it is they can find you sure i'm over on the two true freaks network uh and i have two podcasts one is in country i'm covering the marvel comics series the nom right now i'm about halfway through my run on about uh this is being recorded prior to issue f- episode 51 coming out and the other podcast i have is pop culture affidavit Ooh. that is that's everything random in the world of popular culture meaning i cover something completely different every episode uh sometimes i tie it all together uh there's a mini series going on within this year called 80 years of dc comics where i'm taking a look at a different genre that dc has published that is not superhero related so i've done romance funny animals i'll be doing comedy sci-fi western horror that sort of stuff you can find all of that at two true freaks and popcultureaffidavit.com and, and if you don't mind my asking, um, since I'm a little bit behind on this, and I, you may very well have talked about this already, um, it, where, if if anywhere, does uh, DC Vertigo fit into that? I will probably bring that in on a on kind of a as part of it's. I know DC Vertigo isn't all horror, but. I'm doing horror and sword and sorcery and fantasy and sci-fi kind of all in the same sort of three episodes in a row. So I'll probably kind of bring elements of that in there where it's appropriate. Cause I, and I know vertigo goes way beyond those elements, but the, the core of it started with stuff that was fantasy horror and, and some science fiction. If yeah. you, if you kind of drill it down to the stuff that was popular. Yeah, fair enough. I, I was basically that's that was sort of my gateway into asking, you know. Yeah, because I, 
because I kind of with, with the series I've been trying to do. Okay, here's like a classic example of it, and here's a modern example of how they're still doing the genre. In some cases, it's not really like the romance romance comics in DC are kind of dead, but with funny animals, for instance, it was here's an old funny owl comic, and here's like a Looney Tunes comic. Ah, so I, that's based. So with and with some of the other ones, it's going to be like you know with science fiction it might be here's Adam Strange and here's you know, this or this. And so I'll probably just grab some stuff at random and kind of give a basic overview of it. All right, cool. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, either way, um, thank you for uh, taking the time to uh, join in. Um, irrespective of, you know, the chronology of these episodes, this is actually the last one that I'm, that I'm actually, okay. uh, recording. So, uh, you're the one who's, uh, you know, sort sort of putting a, a bow around all of this for me. I really nice. appreciate you taking the time, and especially giving me three hours when we originally <laughs> talked about one. Yeah. <laughs> so, I am so sorry. That's my. No, no, it's it's no big deal. This was a lot of fun, and uh, it's it's a nice reminder that it's just one of the. It's another reminder of how good the '90s are in terms of comic books. Mm-hmm. If you put aside all of the bullshit that you have to hear from people who, obviously, never read the '90s. And just like the shit on the 90s. Yeah, uh, I have to wonder how many of them were even there for it. Yeah, it's the thing. So it's it's just kind of a nice reminder of like the comics I really, you know, really, really loved 20 years ago almost. <laughs> um, and, and how they still hold up too. This was really, really good. Badass. All right. Well, either way, thanks again for uh, joining me. Now as to uh, next week. Uh, come back as I finish off the Extinction Level Event miniseries with, with an episode that I've already recorded regarding Fear Itself, Marvel's Fear Itself miniseries with uh, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine, <laughs> Hendrix. So, uh, got that coming up. Enjoy. So, uh, as for right now, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nam. Join me. 
Tom Paneris for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.